Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in. Hey, it's been about three weeks since I've released an episode, and I've done that intentionally. I've taken almost a sabbatical. And I'm going to say that this episode that you're going to hear today and from this point forward, I'm shifting a little bit. I'm taking a point. I'm not changing the show too much, but if you listen to the intro of the show or when I sat down and I wrote the mission statement or at least the purpose of the show, the idea was to talk about real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. That is, stands to this day, and even this pivot where I'm going, uh, that hasn't changed. But when I look back at over 400-plus episodes in the conversations, and I enjoy every single one of them, and sometimes people I don't even know, or even business owners, it doesn't matter if they're famous or not, I always get something out of the conversation. But i got to be honest with you, I've been struggling, particularly over the last three weeks, and this is why I've taken the sabbatical, is telling myself, where am I taking the show? What am I doing? Because in the light of everything that has happened in this crazy year that we're calling 2020, something wasn't sitting right with me. And as I go forward, and I'm, and I'm certainly, look, I get 30 to 50 requests a day for people to come on my show, and I wish I could help everybody out and have them on. But sometimes I just don't want to talk to another CEO or another entrepreneur and listen to their story about how they started a business and you know what were the dark moments and how did they recover because I know what they're going to say and I don't mean that with any disrespect to the individuals and I know everybody has their own story and, and, and again even if I would do even if, if I thought that the answers were going to be the same I always learn something from every conversation but again in the light of everything that's been going on in the world and both personally in my personal life, too, of things that have happened, um, it seems almost vanilla to sit there and talk about or talk to another entrepreneur and talk about how they became successful. Again, not to take anything away from that, but I, again, I, I know what the answers are going to be. I know what they did to overcome. It's the same things that we've talked about. When you, I mean, there's themes when you <laughs> talk to 400 people. Some themes tend to emerge, and, and I stand by them. And it's the pursuit of authenticity, the pursuit of being transparent, being vulnerable, and most importantly, being courageous, and, and certainly being tenacious. Those are things that we all need to be reminded of, and I'm certainly will have other conversations with other people, and those things will come up, and I will embrace those. But again, going back in the light of what's been going on in the world, and it seems uh, uh, I'm concerned, and as you probably are too, and it's a crazy, uncharted territory, and one thing that's always been bothering me and where I think I want to start having conversations, where I know I want to start having conversations about, is where is this going? Because one of the challenges of what we see is going on in society, and particularly when we're, again, looking kind of at the postmodernism, I mean, the more that I kind of see where I sense my frustration is, is, is I, I, I feel politically homeless. I feel that there's no place for me to go, there's no place to turn. And then I said, well, this is, podcast is the answer. And it's to start having conversations with people because it affects our leadership. It affects leadership of our organizations, our leaderships 
of our homes and our own personal growth. And what I mean by that is the challenge that we see or the big problem or a big part of I think where a lot of the problems or at least a lot of the anxiety that everybody's dealing with is this the, this culture war that we're in the middle of. And it goes deeper than political correctness. But there's nowhere to go or there's few places to go and they're certainly not highlighted where people can have these open and authentic conversations where conversations about our social, political, or culture conversations can flourish in ways that aren't stagnant. Because let's be honest, all of those conversations have become stagnant. Conservatives are expected to say conservative things. Progressives are expected to say progressive things. We're struggling to communicate effectively with, with everybody. We need to be able to talk to each other authentically, compassionately. And that's where I want to steer the show. That's what I want to do. And in large measure to kind of authentically and compassionately, but courageously debunk or at least head on this kind of idea of the postmodernism, critical theory, systemic, put whatever you want behind it, systemic racism, sexism, those conversations that, to be quite honest, I see are very bullying, bullying very controlled, a movement that does it heavy-handed, bullying tactics, and because of the age of the internet, changing the meaning of many words themselves, in a way basically destroying common sense. Again, this is I, I'm, I'm tired of the political discourse. I am b become, I think, politically agnostic. I don't even like to be labeled about it. This isn't left liberal. This isn't r conservative right. This is, in any case, it's more traditional, if anything. But I would even label it that. I would say I want to get back to things where we talk about principles. Because the answer to all of this, both in our personal and professional life, is having principles. Without principles, we don't have anything. And the reality is the problems that I've seen and, and what I've got some clarity and alignment on over the last three weeks and what I wanted to share with you is that these systemic or these, these ideas that we see in this critical theory mindset, this postmodernism mindset, this political correct mindset, the systemic mindset, is that it purposely does not and cannot add clarity. It obscures it. It does not foster healthy relationships. It doesn't allow authentic conversations about any of the difficult topics, racism, sexism, whatever the case may be. There's no room for personal growth. It induces an unnecessary amount of guilt, an amount of shame, of moral conflict, and most importantly, it does not encourage genuine responsibility. It displaces it. And that does not sit well with me at all. In fact, it flies in the face of everything that we talk about here in Dose of Leadership and what I believe. And so that's where I want to take the show, to have these more meaningful conversations. And I'm not going to adhere to 20 to 30 minutes. I don't care what the podcast gods tell me that you must keep it between 20 and 30 minutes because I don't believe that anymore. If my conversations go three hours, they go three hours. If they go an hour, they go an hour. If they go 15 minutes, they go 15 minutes. I don't care. And you can choose to listen or not. But I think the country and people and the audience that I'm, I'm trying to attract are hungry for the authentic long-form conversation. There needs to be a place for it, and that's what I'm going to try to do here. I have to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to get too bored and I'm going to stop the show. And so I hope you stick with me and I hope we get, get, garner some new fans. And if you leave, I apologize. But I don't think it's much different from what I originally set out the show to do. It affects us both personally and professionally. 
because leadership is about personal growth. It is about not, you know, stopping the guilt, stopping the shame, stopping the moral conflict, standing up tall, raising your shoulders, bearing the burdens, accepting that life is going to be rough and difficult, but holding our head high and being courageous and eventually winning the day. That's what leadership is about. And it certainly is about being principled. And that, my friends, is the answer to everything. And that's what we're going to always remember on this show and what we're going to try to accomplish. And I'm going to do that with my first guest today, James Lindsay. He's an author, a mathematician, political commentator. He's written six books. I, I came across him on his book, uh, which is I'm in the middle of and I absolutely love, uh, called How to Have Impossible Conversations. And I came across it because I literally have lost, I have four daughters, I've basically lost my two older ones to this whole postmodernism critical theory. One is still around, but one has essentially, my 21-year-old, has essentially estranged herself from the family. And again, a lot of my energy has been focused on that. And again, triggering a lot of what I'm talking about here today. And so it's personal for me. James Lindsay has given me a lot of clarity and a lot of alignment to clarifying my thoughts and what's important. And this conversation is long. It's almost two and a half hours long. But I think you'll really enjoy it. You'll get something out of it. He's a breath of fresh air. Politically, again, I don't like to have identities. Our values are different. Politically, he's economically, he sees things differently. He's more progressive. I'm certainly conservative. He's an atheist. I'm more faith-based. But it doesn't matter. You wouldn't even know that. And in fact, I only bring it up because that happens at the end of the conversation. And I brought it up just because to show you how great, how authentic, how genuine our conversations can be when we throw away those identities and those labels. I could easily be fast friends with James Lindsay. And I think you'll see why when you listen to this conversation. He has a website called newdiscourses.com which talks about a lot of the stuff that I've mentioned here. His goal is to provide the means and opportunities to have new discourses. Again, to tackle the social, the political, the cultural conversations, to reinvigorate those. And again, to be a fight, or at least an arrow in the quiver against the culture war. And I just was a thrill to have him on the show. It was a thrill to have this conversation. And again, many more conversations like this are to come in Dose of Leadership. I encourage you to check out James Lindsay's stuff. But he's he's concerned about the values of, you know, inalienable inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness and why it's so important that we talk about it. So again, I think this is a great first guest as I pivot on dose of leadership. And I'm going to thank you for this 12-minute, 13-minute introduction. But I thought it was important. And uh, here's the conversation that I had with James just the other day, and I really think you'll enjoy it. So again, here, without further ado, James Lin- Lindsay here on Dose of Leadership. Well, James, what an honor to, to meet you. Thanks for coming on Dose of Leadership. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to this. I, I reached out to you because I, I'm really frustrated. And um, I haven't recorded. I, I usually record four to five episodes a week and put them in. And, I, and I, I've taken a break. And I, I was trying to – something was gnawing at me, and I couldn't quite figure it out. And it has to do with the state of the world. Obviously, the world's upside down. And, and I, I came across your – conversation on on joe rogan's podcast i'm like man i really enjoyed it i mean i listened to the whole 
almost three hours, I think, wasn't it? Three hours? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was three hours. And really dove into your stuff, dove into your website, just immersed myself in your articles. And it was um, refreshing because it gave me a little clarity and alignment because I, as I was saying in the, in the pre-recording here, I was having, I'm having a tough time talking about culture, talking about how to become a better leader because the elephant in the room is this kind of uh, the challenge of, of critical theory and the, and the social justice and everything. And it doesn't sit well with me. So anyway, mm-hmm. that I'd like to just kind of explore that topic with you today. And, and Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the topic of the hour. And I somehow fell, as they say, <laughs> backwards into um, knowing a lot about it at the right time, I suppose. So hopefully we can get some clarity around the issues that you've been facing. I think there are a lot of issues around leadership in particular and uh, workplace management in particular also that are extraordinarily relevant to discuss because um, this is a totally different way of viewing the world, which is why people have kind of lost their footing around the ideas that they're being presented with. Yeah, I think intuitively, instinctively, and I'm a big guy of that. I'm a big guy of intuition. I'm a big guy of listening to that 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 kind of gut feel and kind of, you know, I think evolution, we've got millions of years of evolution that we, we should listen to it more. And I don't think we do it enough. And I just intuitively, something doesn't sit right with me with... Uh, the direction of, and this isn't a right-left thing, I mean, because I consider myself liberal on some things and, and certainly conservative on some, but I, I don't even like the left-right thing. I've kind of checked out politically. I've kind of checked out from watching the news. Mm-hmm. But something is just, you know, stinks in Denmark when, or rotten in Denmark when it comes to this kind of social justice theory. That it's, like, it's like a circular argument. I can't win, particularly being a white male. That's right. Um, I can't win. And I, I don't know. I, so where do you want to go with this? How, I, do you want to educate my <laughs> we listeners? Can, we can start exactly there about why you can't win if you want. Yeah. This is actually a way of thinking about the world that is designed to where anybody who disagrees with it cannot win. Uh, and then your identity factors, as you noted, noted white male, will then add fuel to that fire and make it even harder for certain people to win. So if we were two Indian women, we would be able to get away with a lot more in this conversation. Um, In general, I mean, I feel like I can get away with whatever because I've read almost everything. (laughs) Well, it's not possible. They've written thousands and thousands of books, but I've read a lot of their material and I'm very fluent and comfortable in it, but most people aren't. So they can't kind of back up where they're where they're talking about things and it becomes very difficult. So an example that I think I gave on Joe Rogan's podcast that I'll repeat here because it's a beautiful example uh, of this idea of can't win is let's, let's put you in the, the situation. Let's imagine that you are a shopkeeper, you own a shop. Maybe it's something where customer service is important. Maybe it's like a high end clothing shop or something. It doesn't really matter what it is, but it's one of these shops where you imagine that you know, you're not going to stand at the register or wait for people to gather their stuff and then come to you. It's, hi, how can I help you? Right as people come through the door and then you're guiding them through the shopping experience. So that's the scenario I want you to imagine you're in. And this is typical of this uh, movement, which we should name. It's called critical race theory. It is a way of thinking about the world in terms of race. And this is, in, this is typical of how critical race theory thinks. And I'll explain why after I kind of show you how screwed you are. And so let's imagine that in very rapid succession, before you have time to cross the room, two people enter your shop. 
one is white and one is black. You have no other information whatsoever. We could change black to Latino or whatever. It doesn't matter as long as you have two different races. Uh, but we'll say white and black because it's obviously the, the greatest extremes in the way that this theory has laid things out. So these two individuals walk in, you start crossing the room. And because you can only attend to one customer at a time, you have to choose. Do you pick the white person to talk to first or do you talk to the black person first? Hi, how can I help you? Glad you're here today. Let's see what we can do. You can't win this decision. You're set up to lose by critical race theory. And so if you decide I'll approach the white person first, critical race theory would say, well, you prefer white people. It doesn't matter your race, by the way. You don't have, it doesn't matter if you're white or not. You are more comfortable with white people. You're more comfortable with whiteness. You want to favor white people. You want to make sure white people are first-class citizens and not white people are second-class citizens, especially black people. So of course you served the white person first, you racist. On the other hand, if you had approached the black person first, critical race theory would analyze that interaction by saying, you don't trust black people. You don't want a black person wandering around in your store unsupervised while you help another customer. You want to get the, the, the black person out of the store as quickly as possible. So obviously you chose the black person to serve first. You racist. And so both, both paths lead to the same conclusion, racism, which you might imagine was therefore the predetermined conclusion. And that's exactly what critical race theory teaches the first tenant of critical race theory. And I do mean that they actually list their tenants of their belief in their fundamental textbooks, like critical race theory and introduction by uh, Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk, the standard undergraduate and early graduate level text on the subject. They list their tenants. The first tenant is that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society and is present in all interactions. So the question, as it's been phrased by some later scholars, and this is, very nearly a quote. If it was in front of me, it would be exactly a quote, but I'm not mis, uh, misportraying it, is the question under critical race theory is not, did racism take place, but how did racism manifest in that situation? So the assumption under critical race theory is that a system of racism pervades all of our society, and it manifests itself in re routine interactions, the kind of vague workings of systems, and essentially everything that you can possibly imagine from conversations to ways of thinking, to ways of teaching, to ways of learning, to ways of interacting with one another, to organizational policy, to organizational cultures that have nothing to do with policy or that even maybe don't match the policy. Everything you can imagine contributes to a system of racism that is ordinary, the state of affairs. And the question becomes for somebody who has taken a critical race theory, and that's I emphasized critical because that's what critical means, is to find the racism in the situation. The critical approach in this regard is not critical thinking. That is explicitly listed in their papers as a form of white supremacy. I'm not exaggerating that. We can cite Alison Bailey, 2017, her paper about privilege preserving epistemic pushback that was published in Hypatia. You can go read it yourself and see it. I didn't make it up. Um, so that would be white supremacy. So that we're not talking about the critical thinking tradition. We're talking about the critical theory tradition, which is yeah. actually different. And it's job is to find oppression that it assumes is there and make it visible. Yeah. Let's, let's give that distinction between critical thinking and critical theory, because if I didn't think about it and I hear critical theory, I'm thinking, well, of course I want to be critical. I want to find the most, you know, uh, I want to dig deep and find 
the right solution. I want to have the difficult conversations. I want to mm -hmm. challenge. I mean, we're all for that. But critical theory is not critical theory thinking, as you said. And so explain the difference. Right. So that is one of the kind of fundamental tricks. And I do mean that of this tradition is that it actually takes words and ideas that we're comfortable with and think mean one thing and then attach a very specific specialized meaning within their way of thinking that is often similar enough where if you kind of squint your eyes really hard, you can say, eh, it's the same thing. But in reality, it's something completely different. The critical thinking tradition is one of reasoned skepticism. It's one of provide your evidence. Let's have uh, your best argument. Let's try to defer to the most objective standard that we can possibly get to. Let's not be hasty. Let's not jump into um, let's not jump into a belief that isn't well grounded, and let's not be gullible. And so that's the idea behind critical thinking. the The, the objective of critical thinking is to apply rigorous methods to try to find it the best truth or the closest thing to the truth that we can find on any given situation. Um, the critical theory tradition, however, is very different. It comes from that same idea that we're going to be skeptical of uh, claims that are being made or situations or circumstances, but it takes that skepticism in a radically different direction. That skepticism is actually much better to be understood as a form of cynicism because its intention is to find the ways that the thing under scrutiny fails to live up to a very particular moral vision and a set of ought right. words, uh, ought descriptions of how the world should be. That tradition and the name critical actually have a deep root in philosophy, the most relevant philosopher. And it, it, I mean, it gets weird and dark real fast just to say it's Karl Marx. Um, the, the word critique here could be derived from Immanuel Kant, but Kant and then Hegel and other German idealist philosophers ended up informing Karl Marx, who decided that the point of critique is ruthless criticism of all that exists for a very particular purpose. And so the context in which critical theory exists is not the same context that critical thinking exists. Critical thinking is the child of the enlightenment. Mm -hmm. It is the, the, the producer of the scientific method as broadly construed as you can imagine, or a plumber testing his, you know, maybe he's not a scientist, but a plumber testing his, his fits on his pipes is still doing something in the scientific realm. He's testing, he has a guess, he tests it, he checks it out. If it doesn't work, he tries something different. Uh, that's still in the broad sense of being enlightenment critical. The critical theory tradition is rooted in Marxist conflict theory. Conflict theory was Marx's idea that society is broken into social groups that are in some way stratified. Uh, this is standard sociology. It's just true. We actually do live in a stratified society. When you say upper class, middle class, lower class or poverty, you are actually talking about a economically stratified society. But Marx's conception of stratification in society was very simplistic. He cut it into two groups, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And the proletariat were the common everyman, the worker class, and then the bourgeoisie were the elites and the capitalist class. And his belief was that the bourgeoisie oppressed the proletariat. And so what the point of his ruthless criticism, thus later critical theory, was to awaken the proletariat's consciousness of how they were being exploited how they were being oppressed. Right. Moving forward in history, you had a number of failed communist revolutions in the early part of the 20th century, late part of the 19th century. 
There's a big mystery among Marxist thinkers about why Marx's predictions weren't coming to pass. And you had the Institute for Social Research arise in Frankfurt, Germany. That uh, was is usually just called the Frankfurt School now. I know I said Frankfurt, Frankfurt. It's actually Frankfurt, but I can't make myself do it. I'm American <laughs> and uh, psychologically. But so, so the Frankfurt School... Um, had a number of thinkers, and their goal was to add in Freud's psychoanalytic theory to try to explain why uh, the Marxist revolutions didn't happen, why the oppressed classes didn't understand their oppression, why they vote against their interests, and in particular, why they voted for fascists, which was relevant and true at their time in the 1920s and early 1930s. So they happened upon the idea that the elites in society produce a way of thinking they called hegemony uh, that um, is pushed through by their ideologies that make people believe what they think is the right way to believe. And this fools people into voting against their interests over time that developed with their various thinkers like Theodore Adorno uh, and Herbert Marcuse into looking at the ways that mass culture, pop culture, middle culture all subvert the revolutionary will of average people. So they have their ability to go buy consumer products and they have their ability to go to the movies and they can go to the football game and they can enjoy their lives and they have a nice middle-class existence. And the critical theory school, Frankfurt school (laughs) interpreted this as the elites finding a way to steal the revolutionary will away from the proletariat (laughs) and make them think that they're not that bad lives were not that bad, which is no good for fomenting a revolution. So what they outlined critical theory formally for the first time in 1937 uh, by Max Horkheimer was the first one to write the book, but he had help from the Theodore Adorno. I just noted they explicitly meant the the critical part of critical theory is to help the oppressed classes of society, whatever those happen to be, understand their oppression so that they will want to throw it off by dismantling the society that oppresses them by overthrowing the elites. Fast forward into the 60s, it got attached to race, it got attached to other aspects of identity, and this has been kind of the um, runaway train that we didn't know society was riding until it finally, I guess, launched itself off the cliff about a month and a half ago, and right. everybody became aware that this has been been, been building up in the academy for 50 years. Well, I mean, that, you said a lot there, but I think that's what's so important to kind of have that historical context, because again, I think even e- even... Before this tinderbox, you know, this kind of perfect storm that set everything off this year that we call 2020. Um, yeah, I mean, it has its roots, as you said, because I think if you someone who's not paying attention or, or just kind of casually and if you hear me talking about or if I went up to somebody and said, hey, well, this is all happening because and it has its roots in kind of this uh, Karl Marx uh, theory, they'd think I was a conspiracy theorist or a nut job, right? Man, I get it every day, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's an important point that, because it, at the essence of what you said here, what, what we're looking at, mm-hmm. and this is personal for me because I have uh, two, I have four daughters. I have two of them. I've literally lost two of my daughters to this, mm-hmm. to the point to where one of them is essentially estranged from us because of, uh-huh. of this Almost, and I and dare I even say, it resembles a cult to me. And I say that because I, it, I, I, it's personal to me because I've seen what it did, particularly to my twenty-one-year-old. Mm-hmm. I can relate. And it's this idea 
that the world, which again, it's off-putting to me because I've been accused of being complicit of a system that I didn't even know existed, if that makes sense. Right. Well, yeah, that's part of your complicity, as a matter of fact, is not knowing it exists, right. according to the theory. But from my vantage point, from what I see is that, okay, they're spouting, quote unquote, air quote, universal values, but they're universal to who? Are they really that universal? Because the way that I see it, a world is being created that is um, ideal for upper to middle class white intellectuals from Western societies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that the oppressed that they claim to be so caring about are kind of along for the ride. In, it has in, that feeling, doesn't it? That, that, they're, that they're a tool. So yeah, I, it, right. I, I don't know. I don't know if that made sense. I mean, this is an ideology that is primarily suited for people who have the time and advantages required to learn a lot of like seven syllable words with hyphens in them (laughs) and to learn a lot of highly specialized terminology uh, and, and these kind of complicated theories that are literally detached from reality, which most people who have to interact with reality on a day to day basis don't have the luxury to do. I mean, you fly aircraft, you don't have the luxury of theorizing that the aircraft is going to just work some different way, that the runway is going to be under different conditions when right. you bring the plane down. You have to actually constrain your beliefs to reality. It's, again, very difficult to believe, but I want to give your, your listeners three words that uh, struck me when I first hit them about a year and a half ago. Uh, as the kind of key point in that those three words are ideas have consequences. Mm-hmm. So ideas shape the way that we try to interact with the world. This is a very uh, interesting ideology and these ideas go way back. So when I say that you have to be constrained by the realities to fly and land an aircraft safely. Um, I mean, obviously if you're not worrying about the safe landing, you don't, you can do whatever you want, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Sure. I mean, even there, you can't do whatever you want. The no. thing isn't going to go light speed or something all of a sudden. Right. Uh, you can't activate the warp drive that's in the not in the back of the thing. So you're still constrained. But this, there, there was a full set of philosophies that arose in the 1960s that I did not mention in that kind of long genealogy a moment ago uh, named postmodernism. Yeah. And postmodern philosophy was an offshoot of this critical theory school that wanted to look at the question of social power differently. These were the, the French take on all of this kind of German idealistic philosophy, idealist philosophy, I should say. And so one of their theorists, Michel Foucault, the most cited theorist of all time, as a matter of fact, with something like a million citations, which is insane. Albert Einstein has a a little over a hundred thousand. Michel Foucault has a million. It's an order of magnitude bigger. So again, ideas have consequences. He had the belief that power works through every individual and that ultimately our decisions about what is true and what is false in the world are socially decided. You know, it's scientists decide what qualifies as science. Of course, the fact is that they decide that by trying it against the world and seeing what does and does not work. It's not actually arbitrary, but Michel Foucault didn't care about that. He said, ultimately, this is a social process. And if it's a social process, it's imbued with political processes and biases. And so the political biases of people are baked into claims about truth and reality. And his objective was 
to open people's minds, and this is sort of indicative of postmodern philosophy, to open people's minds to other potentialities of being. That's a quote, potentialities of being. So again, normal people aren't saying potentialities of being. They they just aren't. This is highly elite, specialized nonsense. And it's obviously also nonsense because, you know, as we were just describing with the jet, not having a warp drive constrains its potentialities of being, you know, the Starship Enterprise. Um, And the potentialities of being of the, the, you know, the concrete that the runway is made out of. have some tremendous, tremendous impacts on, right. on, you know, what, what speeds at which that plane can hit the ground and, and, and other, other things. So, so reality does constrain us, but the postmodernists wanted to believe that these, these constraints are all ultimately politics. Foucault's point was that to talk about truth and falsity is to miss the point that there's politics baked into the system, which has now gone just completely off the rails. So now what you have is people who genuinely don't believe that truth and falsity are the most important thing and where that has moved due to the drift of these ideas over time and the combination of the critical theory is how things make oppressed groups feel. Yeah. And they define who the oppressed groups are and their feelings become their lived experience of reality becomes the arbiter of validity and invalidity. This does take on cult-like manifestations because you're now talking about a metaphysic of how the world works. You're not talking about realities out there. We ask questions of reality through experiments and experience. You're now talking about, we have this interpretation of reality that you have subjectively in your feelings. One person's feelings count more than others for various reasons. This is a metaphysic of the world. And the ways that these are really enforced is by the way we think and talk about things, what we consider to be true and false. Again, this is a metaphysical view. So now we're leaving the realm of, of, the enlightenment entirely and moving into the realm of something spiritual in nature uh, in a kind of broad sense, sociological spiritualism. And um, everywhere you have a religion, you have the possibility to spawn a cult. And so when you have these kind of double binding situations that we talked about at the very beginning, what's imagine, let's go back to that. Imagine that you're that shopkeeper and now you've had your interaction, you did whatever you did. It doesn't matter, as you saw, you're racist for both picking white or black first. And then some third customer who happened to be browsing in the store over, overlooked this. This is probably going to be a upper middle class white person as it happens, but who knows? Browsing in the store, watches the interaction, and comes up to you and says, hey, don't you think that was a little bit racist? Yeah. What you just did there. So what's your feeling as that person who just got confronted with that question? Well, we know right? Racism's terrible. Mm-hmm. If you, like you said, you're a reflective kind of guy, you think that it's key to leadership and growth to reflect it on your own life. I think we said that before we, we started recording, but it is, it's key to be, to live a self-reflective life. The life, the unexamined life is not worth living as you know, right. the Greek tradition says. And so you're going to reflect on that. Was it a little bit racist? And that feeling that you have is vulnerability. Yeah. And a cult operates by manufacturing vulnerability and then manipulating you into finding resolution to that vulnerability through the cult doctrine. This is a straight entry level pattern in cult indoctrination. So it's to make you feel vulnerable and then to give you the resolution to your vulnerability through the doctrine. Well, what you did was a little bit racist because, and then either explanation suffices. Do you Have you really read any of this material about anti-racism? Do, do you understand the systemic nature of racism mm-hmm. and how what you did was complicit in that system? And so then you start to draw people into that doctrine 
And as cults progress, there are different methods. There's a bite model from Stephen Hassan, for example, that tries to control B-I-T-E as behavior. Um, uh, what's the I? Information, thought, and emotions, mm -hmm. B-I-T-E, control of each of those. And the, over the process of you getting kind of pulled along into this literature and into this, you know, the communities that are talking about this and you try to fit in and be good with these communities, they increasingly control what you're able to be exposed to, who you're being able to be exposed to. And so like your experience with an, an estranged daughter and maybe a second one on the way, I have similar experiences in my own life, actually. So I can relate on a personal level to you as you, as you get drawn into this, you have to be separated from people who might question the doctrine. And so that's where this cult like, thing well, happens. Yeah, and that's why it's so dangerous because in your example, the white Karen that was was observing my my apparently systemic racist behavior. Um and it makes me kind of makes me go back and like, oh wow, am I what am I doing? You know, and it, or some might somebody might get really defensive. Either way you can't someone might go defensive and then then mm -hmm. you're a soundbite on CNN. Mm -hmm. Right? But the it, it the white Karen in this example isn't. I agree with you. I, I can. It, it's almost. It's so dangerous because it's so seductive. Because that white Karen, for example, that was ad, you know admonishing me, it happened almost. You know, she didn't go to a class and was handed a pamphlet and and said, "Here, do this." You know, follow the bite model. It right. just it happened so seductively because it preyed upon her own feelings of. Um insecurities, guilt, limiting beliefs. I don't know if I'm hitting all sure. those. And also justice, fairness, right. want for a better society, Absolutely. the need to be reflective and avoid a f unnecessary offense or discrimination. So it really preys upon the best sides of human nature and in, in liberal societies in particular. Um, so it's very, very dangerous and very seductive. And uh, I, I mean, I just had an email sent to me just before we started, we sat down to talk where somebody had said that they had this conversation with their friend recently, a couple of months ago, and they got talking about systemic racism. And the person was like, well, I don't really, you know, I don't think that's the best way to talk about it. And so it's very kind of reasonable thing. And they had this long kind of day long conversation in and out of the topic. And, you know, they ended up hugging at the end and, Hey, I can't wait to see you again or whatever. Life got busy. And so they finally end up texting each other again, just a few days ago. And um, the person, says, you know, hey, do you want to get together? Uh, haven't seen you in a while or whatever. And the response from the person who raised systemic racism in the first place was, I can't spend time with you anymore. You have some fundamental disagreements. You said that you don't really believe systemic racism is the right way to think about things. We have fundamental disagreements on some very basic things, and it's best if I basically remove you from my life. And I mean, these are close friends. So yeah. uh, that is not normal behavior around disagreement between right. people who care about each other. Right. This is a um, ideology and a way of thinking and a worldview that instructs its people that, that take it up to separate themselves from all possible sources of contamination in terms of whether it's racist thought, racist association. And I say racist, but it's not just racism. It's sexism, yeah, misogyny, it's homophobia, transphobia, ableism, disabledism. And you can just start going down the, the list. One of their theorists, most famous theorists, Judith Butler, actually referred to it in one of her papers as that exasperated, et cetera. 
of <laughs> listing all of the identities because even yeah. they're tired of having right. to say it. Right. You know, the whole list every time. And it's, so, yeah, it's a very not healthy way to approach life. Um, it's, I don't know how much of it import, is imported from even social media where you just block and delete and unfriend people I think from I've, your life yeah. for disagreeing with you. I'm not a psychologist, but I think just from a common sense perspective, yeah, I think because it, it makes it easy. It's no, social media is kind of like the same thing when you're, you feel pretty, and when you're in your car and you feel that it's okay to, you know, mm-hmm. flip somebody off, you know, which you wouldn't do if we were walking next to each other, you know, because you're in right. an isolated bubble and social media just makes even that more, much more isolated and anonymous mm-hmm. and, and powerful. But uh, going back to the, when, when you talk, you, that's come up quite a bit, this whole idea of systemic, right? The systemic racism, systemic, whatever it is. And, and right. I, that's one of those things that, again, that just didn't sit well with me because I, I, I guess I'm from the traditional thinking side of it where it, from a leadership perspective, it's all about personal responsibility, right? And it is about the individual and that if I spend most of my time working on myself and being authentic, transparent, and vulnerable with myself and those around me, then that gives people the freedom around me to do the same. And and that's infectious. And the systemic idea, this postmodernism just kind of try to wipes all that out because it goes into it assuming as you said, it dumbs it down to you're either the oppressor or the oppressed. And you're the good guys. If you're the oppressed, you're the bad guys. If you're the oppressor. And that's right. And all of this that we see around us, all these blessings and all these remarkable accomplishments that we've achieved um, from science to business, to medicine, to whatever has all been created through a patriarchal oppressed system. Right? right. Am, am I saying this right? Again, you're the doctor. You are this, actually. But I mean, that is that is correct. Um, they they view um, for a variety of reasons, all of which are bad. Um, they view the various ways that we think and learn and teach uh, about knowledge, about gathering knowledge. So science, reason, evidence, civility, rules of order, debate, dialogue, dialectic you know, all these kinds of constructive things that we've developed as techniques over, over time as just being manifestations of white supremacy and patriarchy and heteronormativity and all of these, again, 10 syllable words that basically mean that you're somehow in the oppressor group. And so, uh, I mean, they make claims that when you hear them, you're like, it's again, it's like, if I squint hard enough, eh, yeah, okay. But there's some, it's not even like something doesn't sit right. It's like, that's just stupid. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, the claim that science is patriarchal uh, is very prominent in the feminism of the 1980s going into the 1990s. And it was based upon uh, claims that more men than women worked in science. So therefore they must be putting secret male bias into science. Right. And there were small points where they could raise and say, well, we've overlooked these important things to do with, say, women's health and medicine, because we had a, whether you want to call it patriarchal, whether benevolent sexist, whatever you want to call the, the norm that until quite recently, the idea that, well, this is really risky. So let's only do it to men because they're expendable and let's protect women. <laughs> so there was less medical research on women because men were trying to protect women from medical research going wrong. 
that becomes like a manifestation of of oppressing women because it you know there's less knowledge but then they also would point to like foundational scientific texts by like francis bacon written 400 years ago and say well francis bacon said things like you know there's a the the science the relationship of the science scientist to the natural world is like a is like a marriage and the scientist becomes like you know the the whatever dominant husband yeah and his submissive wife has to do whatever and they're like see science from four some guy writing a metaphor 400 years ago <laughs> means that all of science is cooked through with these biases as though that's absolutely permanent um and so they genuinely now still believe that science is somehow patriarchal and that the, uh, depending on the science, but if it's something like physics, which they'll point to, but not something like medicine, which they will conveniently not point to, which is now female dominant, uh, they will point out and say, oh, well, 80% of physicists are men. So that's obviously because it can't be possibly because of the nature of physics and who's good at physics or interested in physics. And I'm not saying women can't be good at physics. It's just that the data seem to show that pe- women who are good at mathematic, math, math, uh, mathematically heavy subjects also tend to be linguistically skilled. And so they have a greater variety of career options. And maybe doing awful physics all day isn't something that they want to spend their time doing if they have other options that aren't available because men on average who are good at math are tend, are tend not to be good verbally. Yeah, this is not explained why this is the case, but it seems to be the case and it seems to be stable across cultures. So it's probably something biological, but you're not allowed to say that. Um, So that would be raised up as evidence that there's must be patriarchal biases in science that have to be undone. And despite, you know, decades of women in science, women in STEM, scholarships, programs, blah, blah, blah. These numbers have remained, not only have they remained stable, they've kind of gone backwards. There were more women getting into science and STEM in the 80s and and early 90s than there are now, Uh, except in countries where basically like in India, where people are rapidly trying to, you know, gain as much, where you don't have the same economic stability and thus ability to choose your own path in life you have to choose the lucrative thing rather than the, right, uh, the, the, the thing, thing you that love. you really want to do. Right. But I think it's important oh. to, to point out, cause you, you can even use Scandinavia as a great example where right. they, they tried to legally say, this is what you're going to do. And the reality is when, when people are left to their own devices uh, and there's nothing sexist about it, but I mean, more women are going to choose nursing and more mm-hmm. men are going to choose mechanical engineering, and this, there's nothing. And, and I don't know the reasons why for that, but right. it, you, it's just the way human beings are. And I and I, it's frustrating because again, as a as a white privileged male, you know, I bring up these things, and I, I can't um, get by without being accused of whatever, right? But I'm just kind of I'm tired of it because and going back to the systemic thing, and this is what really. Well, I was excited to talk to you because the clarity that I got from this idea of systemic, that the systemic problems and the reason why it's so powerful and why it doesn't set well with me, because it, it, it asks the question who benefits. It doesn't, it doesn't go to what's the intent, right? That's right. And, That's right. And so That's speak, exactly right. speak a little bit to that. What does that, what does that mean to you when you hear me say that? So in, in, in the literature, actually, you can find them talking. So I can quote Again, I have to paraphrase because I don't have it directly in front of me, but I can quote from from very famous scholars now like Robin D'Angelo, who say that within the question of science, there is the question of objectivity. 
And we have to realize that objectivity, she says, is not possible and may not even be desirable because we have to start learning to question who's presumed objectivity and who benefits from the application of the science. Right. And so what you, you just put your finger on is exactly correct. The question is who benefits from this and whoever benefits from it is, is complicit in the system of, you know, imaginary oppression. So a really great example there, I mean, we talked about patriarchal science a second ago, but uh, a really great example would be that um, say scientific knowledge has, you know, requires very rigorous methods that are very difficult and statistical. And so it does exclude people who aren't good at statistics. And because of whatever set of historical contingencies and maybe other factors uh, like cultural predilections, people choosing to do what they want to do with their lives in a free society, uh, I don't see any reason to see that there are biological reasons across race, just to make that very clear. But you do see fewer numbers of statistically competent black and Latino people in our society. If we're just to look at how many there are, uh, proportionally speaking, than their proportion of the population. Maybe it's because fewer of them go to college because they're in higher rates of, pro- of poverty. Maybe there are other reasons, but there there are some reasons that must lead to this conclusion. But their belief would be that uh, saying, "Well, you know, you have to use statistics." to do your social science or whatever your other science is, you have to use these mathematically rigorous methods that you learned in these, uh, you know, collegiate courses uh, that excludes blacks and Latinos who don't know how to do that. And therefore that's white supremacy acting in terms of uh, maintaining, uh, you know, white dominance in science because more white people proportionally speaking and more, it turns out Asian as well, but that complicates their narrative a bit uh, are good at, those particular skills. And so unless there's an equal representation of all of these skills, what they would say is, well, look, well, white people get more of these high status jobs, more white people get to be scientists, more white people get to go inform Congress based on scientific findings that works its way into policy. So therefore, white people benefit from a system that enshrines, say, statistical knowledge or methodological rigor above, and I'm not exaggerating, this is straight out of the critical race theory book, storytelling, uh, so I'm, I know that sounds horrendously racist for me to associate storytelling with black people as opposed to re- methodological rigor, but that's their book. I don't believe it. It's what they wrote in their book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the critical race theory view is that storytelling is one of their methods and that science is one of the white methods. So white people have science. They exclude storytelling as a non-scientific method, and then they get all these prestigious opportunities as a result. So they benefit. So then white people all benefit from this white systemic racism. And that's, explicitly written in their books about how society is organized and what systemic racism actually means. Um, That's not even the complicity side, which if you want me to blow your mind about that, I I think I kind of did it. I did on on Joe Rogan's podcast, but I've kind of developed it a little further. Uh, That complicity side is also who benefits through complicity is so important for people to understand is that this is when they say systemic racism, that's what they mean. Um, so kind of just summarize the same argument that I've, I've put out uh, very simply is like, if you and I were out for a walk, mm-hmm. uh, walking down the sidewalk along a street, maybe it's not even a very busy street. The, you know, you can start cooking in all these fun variables like this. And I step on a broken bottle and trip and twist my ankle and fall. And I crash into you as I fall. And I knock you into the street just as a car that's above the speed limit happens to be going by. 
and runs you over, but say it's only like five or six miles over the speed limit. Uh, so if it would have been going the speed limit, it wouldn't have been there. It would have been able to stop. It wouldn't have hit you. There's all these different factors. You know, why did that person leave their house? Why were we walking at that time instead of other times? You know, maybe your boss called and all of a sudden you weren't able to go when we were scheduled to. So you can start looking at all the different people who contributed to the situation when we try to start placing blame. So the systemic situation outlined specifically in the book, Being White, Being Good by Barbara Applebaum, which is a landmark book in 2010, about it within the critical whiteness branch of critical race theory would say that everybody who benefits from the culture that enabled that tragedy to happen technically is complicit in your death. So as the opposed culture, to the, where the traditional side would be like, Hey, you know, it was an accident, no fault. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. So the culture that everybody who benefits from a culture that drives cars is now <laughs> complicit Everybody who benefits from a culture where people go for walks and have exercise. So, you know, Nike isn't is now because they sell running shoes, even if neither of us were wearing Nikes, uh, but they're complicit in the fitness culture. And so everybody who benefits from the idea of a fitness culture, they're complicit because that's why we were out for our walk to get some exercise that we got brainwashed by the elites to believe we need exercise to have good lives. Uh, people who benefit from the fact that there's, I mean, it's institutional because in, in the very law, because there's a, Typically, police officers ignore people going five miles an hour over the speed limit. Right. It's not a big deal. So, so, so now the complicit. police, the, right. the institution itself, by having this blind eye policy that people benefit from because they can leave their house later and still get to places on time by breaking the law, uh, technically, they're complicit in your death. And you can just start going down the list. Yeah, the, basically, the, what you the, figure out is the everybody's complicit. The alcohol company that was made the alcohol that the guy was drinking out of the bottle and threw out of his window and broke on the sidewalk, they're complicit. Yeah. Well, not just that, but everybody who ends up drinking and enjoying themselves because they had some drinks, they're complicit because that, right. who, who's the alcohol company selling their product to? The entire capitalist society that, that generates the demand for alcohol is actually complicit as well. So everybody's complicit in your death. See, and that's and, the, and that highlights the danger that that's what is, that gave me the clarity because it distributes and there's no end to it. I mean, you could go, we could go in infinitum on that. You know, mm -hmm. and so who bears the responsibility for this accident? And the, so the systemic side or the postmodern theory would say, well, this whole system's broke. See how, see how screwed up the system is? Right. You know, so in that example, we need to so foment we a need a revolution. Right. We need to foment a revolution and, and destroy what, and so that is what's happening. Right. And so that's literally what it is. Yeah. Yes. Why is it so attractive to say my 21 year old daughter who is, um, gay, and I'm saying that because I'm I fought the the label war. I fight the label wars. You know, I mean, I can't even have a normal conversation because everything is so much about identity. Mm -hmm. It's like the identity takes more importance over the individual. That's what I've noticed in my daughters, and that's the big problem that I've always had with all of this is because where's the individual responsibility? And what you just laid out with the systemic rate, the systemic kind of definition in postmodernism, is it it dilutes the responsibility, right? That's the danger, or that's one of the dangers, right? It, it, so there's, there's a term that has some legitimacy to it. It's, you're going to laugh when you hear the term or kind of be exasperated, but the term is responsabilizing, to, <laughs> to responsabilize somebody. But there's a legitimate use for this. So I'll give you the legitimate use to, to introduce you to the concept of responsabilization. So let's say that we live in a country where there are good um, 
good water standards. And so the government takes it upon itself to make sure that the, there's no lead in the water, that the water is not poisonous, that it's not going to come out of the tap like in Flint, Michigan and catch on fire, um, you know, that it's not poisonous. And then all of a sudden that breaks down and then somebody comes along to say the state, in fact, representatives of the states come along and say, well, buy, you need to buy a water filter. You need to make sure your own water is clean. You need to do your own water testing and make sure. When there's a reasonable argument that something would be provided by society or the state or whatever it happens to be, and then you push that onto the individual, that is called responsibilizing them for that. Sometimes that's reasonable. It's sometimes that's unreasonable. I think that people having to do their own water testing and purity would be a fairly unreasonable responsibilizing request. However, you know, taking some reasonable precautions about, uh, you know, how you, how you handle your, your car, for example, whether, you know, it's, do we need to have really strict uh, vehicle inspections or can we be more loose about it? Maybe it doesn't need to be, you know, as big of a deal. So there's, there's reasonable forms and unreasonable forms. The debate over seatbelts would fall under this category in some sense. Uh, libertarians often are against the, the required use of seatbelts um, or motorcycle helmets. So you can responsibilize somebody uh, legitimately or illegitimately. And this theory actually believes because it sees things in terms of identity groups entirely. There is no individual. Every individual is a mascot for their mix of unique identity groups to which they belong under this line of thinking, uh, which gives them, why is it attractive? It gives them a team to be on. It gives them a tribe to belong to uh, that satisfies something where they get to be intrinsically special. Uh, so they don't have to work for being special. They just are, which is an easy way, especially when you're young, to find value when it's you haven't accomplished anything in much in life yet. It's hard to accomplish meaningful things. So uh, they would see it as telling anybody to take personal responsibility as responsibilizing them if they belong to any so-called pr protected class or oppressed group. So your daughter you mentioned is gay. She would say, I can't take responsibility for that because of the way gay people are treated in society. And now she has like a, it's not my fault story that she can lean on. And I'm not, you know, casting any moral uh, shade on your daughter but just to use her as kind of an example. And I don't know if she thinks that way, but some people certainly do. And you are responsibilizing me for something I couldn't take responsibility for. Yeah. Uh, um, you see this actually a good example of that, uh, of the question in legitimate, uh, in a legitimate argument is where you start talking about how accessible voting locations should be. Say, you know, uh, for the election in November, should you have, a lot of them so that people who don't have easy access to drive are able to walk or catch buses. Do we need to have something that lets people catch a bus to go vote? Or is it their own responsibility to be, you have to place their own, you know, put the responsibility on them to get themselves to the polling location. And so there's, that's a real question of responsabilization. But then when you start thinking in the systemic identity group thing, the idea is that society should be perfectly fair to all identity groups. There should be no bigotry whatsoever. So the expectation that whether reasonable or unreasonable, that any person in a protected class take responsibility for their own life is offensive because it responsibilizes them in an unfair way. Obviously this is going to be attractive to anybody who can either outsource their own sense of responsibility because they don't want to take responsibility for their life because it's hard or B 
who can do that by proxy for somebody else who can say, you know, well, I have a privileged life, but think about how terrible, you know, imaginary, say black person has it. And you can't ask them to do that. You can't ask extra of them. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that this came out of a very kind of uh, mothering energy and that it's so wrapped up in feminism uh, in terms of how it came to fore in, in society because that urge to care about the person who needs extra help, again, skews slightly female for whatever set of reasons, which theory says is because men are terrible and are taught the wrong way to be men, but that's probably not real. Um, so I don't know for sure why it's so seductive. I am not the kind of person who's comfortable not taking responsibility for my own life. And in fact, I probably create unnecessary difficulty in my own life because there are things I probably don't have to take responsibility for that I do anyway. Uh, but that's just kind of who I am and how I guess I was raised to be. And this is a kind of carte blanche ideology for people who, who don't want to do that. I could tell a story of a similar young woman I know who I got that, I, I don't know, maybe the story she's telling is true. I just got that same vibe of being unwilling to take personal responsibility and being able to lean into an identity argument to avoid it. If you want to hear that story. Yeah, I, I do want to hear it. I, I would say though, uh, you know, when I was thinking about my, my daughter and some of the conversations that I would have around this is that I don't think Personally, she sees that she's not taking responsibility. I guess I would just see from from some of the actions, and again, kind of educating people about the kind of the danger of the the systemic um, philosophy, or at least the definition under a postmodern philosophy, is dangerous because again, it it, it dumbs down the responsibility, or at least it, mm -hmm. it dilutes it. There's no room for personal growth, which is what you just in stark contrast to what I believe wholeheartedly. That's why I even do this show because it is all about personal growth and it induces a lot of unnecessary guilt, I guess, is what I see. Yeah, and, I, yeah. and, and those are the things that I see. But I guess even in the conversations, if I went up and I asked my daughter, I said, you know, she says, what do you mean? I'm, I'm busting my ass trying to make things happen and this and that. But it's everything is around again, the identity, the group, mm -hmm. um, and not the, not the individual. Right. So, yeah, that issue of responsabilization comes up with the systemic thinking in terms of when people believe that the system should specifically be the thing that, that yeah. either takes care of them or that doesn't limit them. And both of these arguments are relevant. And often the system limiting them might be kind of, I, I hate to say it, but might be sort of read into the situation. I was going to say made up, but I think read into is more relevant because that's what critical theory teaches people to do is to read systemic oppression into situations. So to kind of be neat about with how, how we've been developing this so far. So this story of this young woman, I know, um, she was, uh, I majored in physics. My, my bachelor's degree is in physics and then I changed to math. And so, uh, she, she's a friend of one of my daughters and I'm talking to her and she says that she was a physics major and I'm like, wow. So we start talking about it. And then she said, well, I only made it one year in, in physics. And I don't mean to sound this way, but I mean, I finished a degree in physics. I have a PhD in math. I taught university for 10 years. You can kind of get it. Sometimes people surprise you, but you can kind of get a read on how kinda serious a student how, is. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can kind of get a read on especially relevant in physics and math and things like that that are 
truly difficult subjects. You have to do the work. There's no shortcut yeah, you have there. To do it, right. And so she said, well, I only made it one year as a physics major because the department was so intrinsically sexist. They just hated women so much that oh, I you know, had to quit that department. And then I said, oh, well, what happened after that? And she said, well, then I switched and I majored in computer science. And I was like, so you're, so you're learning to code or whatever, coding you know, super valuable, blah, 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 trying to have a regular conversation with this girl. And then she's like, well, I had to quit that too, because that department was also super sexist and it was just wasn't giving good grades to girls. It just didn't want girls in the culture, you know, so it wasn't good for women. And so I had to quit computer science too. And now, you know, I don't know what she's doing now. I think she almost dropped out of school or she's thinking about mm -hmm. going back or taking a gap year or something. And I mean, I majored in physics. I, you can say whatever you want about my white male privilege. I can tell you that it is a soul crushing subject to study unless you are a absolute intellectual freak. Yeah. You have to work hard unless you are one in like 10 million. It is a hard subject to study. And I studied all the time. And then I switched to math and it is a hard subject to study. And I took a little bit of computer science. I did not major in it, so I can't speak directly about it, but it was also a you know very hard subject. And so there's a lot of what I have noticed with these kind of identity studies approaches that look at the systemic mindset and looking for, for you know, putting the responsibility on the system. I've noticed there's a lot of a theme that's kind of thing happens to everybody. My identity had it unfair. Yeah. You know, physics is hard. Women most affected. Um, and at the, I, it's almost unavoidable that you can see this sort of unwillingness to confront. I don't want to say that this woman, this young woman is stupid. I don't think she is. I, I, it's nothing like that. But the amount of work that you have to put in, the number of sacrifices you have to make to excel in something like physics or math or computer science those are very high. I watched my own friends that I was close with in college just bounce out of engineering majors because they couldn't put in the work. And again, I don't think these are stupid people. I don't think they had a learning disability that would prevent it or anything of that sort. They certainly weren't being systemically discriminated against apparently because they were white men who could not pass calculus and had to bounce out of their engineering majors. I firmly believe that if they put in the time and the work, but I saw them, I'm not judging them. Life is complicated. Many things are happening at once all the time. They went to parties every Friday. Maybe they didn't go on Wednesday or whatever yeah. and miss a test, but they were, you know, they weren't, they weren't putting in crazy extra effort to in all their spare time to learn calculus. You can say, well, they shouldn't have to because some people are naturally good at it, but that's, just too bad you know you, yeah you have to live the life of the that you were given it's in um, it, and, and i guess that's where you and i and i completely understand and, and i got a couple stories too that kind of support your point um but i mean it goes back to the point that that i think accepting responsibility for for complicated and difficult circumstances is what it's all about and okay so so let's say that the physics department is sexist it is it you know, I, let's not even go to the, is it or isn't. I mean, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to what better way to kind of prove that it's not than just to, to buckle down it and, and bust through it? Now, that may be oversimplifying it. But I mean, when I my last tour in the Marine Corps, I did a joint tour with the Air Force as an instructor. So I was teaching people at the primary flight training at the very beginning of it. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And again, you can argue it's a, and it, there's no doubt about it. It is a male dominated aspect of the military. I mean, mm-hmm. historically, because they didn't let women do it for a long time and then they started to. Uh, but, but even then, um, I've had to deal with that over the last 30 years and seen as like, well, there would, you know, women are being held back because of this. And I can tell you wholeheartedly that my best student that I ever had, bar none, in my whole time of instructing and flying, and I've been flying since, you know, 1993. And by far the best student I ever had was a, a female student, and she knocked it out of the park. And what I think her difference was, and I try to explain this to my daughters, is not once did she complain about the unfair advantage or, you know, being kind of stand. It, it is what it is. She was uh, in a she was a minority for sure, mm-hmm. but she buckled down and she did what she was supposed to do and mm-hmm. she knocked it out of the park and she had a natural right. ability of it too. And she even went on and went into a very, in, in, when she selected, she, she got jet, she graduated at the top of the class and she yeah. says, what do you think I should do? I want to go fly F-15s. And I'm like, okay. I said, I'm never going to be a dream crusher. I said, just be, you know, understand what you're going to be faced with when you go into this male-dominated, testosterone-fueled kind of goofy culture, you know? I didn't, that's why I said I didn't go fighters because I didn't want to be around a bunch of guys who were talking. I said, but if that's what you want to do, don't ever have a chip on your shoulder and just go let your flying speak for itself. And she did this, that, and she excelled in that, that community. And so, again, I, it, it doesn't, it wasn't easy and I'm not saying there weren't guys in along the way who thought, what the hell? Why is it, you know, this, this woman's ruining our party. Right. Right. You know, there were surely there were jerks like that. Sure. But she excelled because she said, whatever, I'm just going to go do and do, you know, you see what I'm saying? And I've worked yeah. with some great leaders in corporate America too. And some of the best leaders I worked for were women. And some of the yep. worst ones that I've had were women. And the ones that were worse was because they were trying, they had chips on their shoulder and they were trying to overcompensate for what they perceived as an oppressor-oppressed society, and the ones right. that succeeded were just like, "Hey, this is competitive, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick ass." I, I don't. Yeah, know. yeah. I, I, no, I, I hear you, and and you you speak to the point where you you even said, you know, that that yeah, there's gonna be jerks in that situation. Well, if I do a close reading of your of your use of language, generally speaking. That's how we view people who are jerks. We consider them to be jerks. We don't have a system, a systemic society that is like, yeah, sexist, you know, yay, racist. We, right. Nobody thinks that way. Anymore. Exactly. That was true decades ago. Mm-hmm. That nobody thinks that way anymore. Or when they do, you know, they're, well, they're, they're cer- not held in esteem. That's right. There's certainly outliers that are like, that guy's a fool, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and usually you have people stepping in doing exactly the thing that this, this theory says people should be doing, but in, but in a way that works rather than in some psychotic uh, way that, that just kind of gets people to wallow in their, their, their failure. I'll point out to you by way of telling stories that in my physics department, there was one woman in, in when I was majoring in physics and uh, out of all of us. And, and when we started, there was one woman. And when we graduated, there were zero women. Uh, and, it's very interesting that uh, this young woman was the top of our class in every single physics class we had. She made perfect scores, which is almost impossible on the majority of her physics exams through even very difficult classes like electricity and magnetism and classical mechanics, quantum mechanics. And 
we got to the middle of our senior year. And at that point, nearly the entire class, 80% of us had been weeded out, did not make it to the senior year. But the one woman did with the highest grades of all of us. And so there are very few of us left in any of the senior level classes. And she's making 100, 100, 100. All of us are like struggling. I'm making like 75. I'm like struggling. And all the other guys are struggling. And she's like 100, 100. She studied all the time. Then all of a sudden, literally near the end of our our last semester before we graduated, she just kind of stopped coming to class. And then she got a 40 on her next test. And then she just didn't show up for the next test. And then she officially dropped out of the major a month before graduating. So that's why she didn't graduate because she had fallen in love with French and decided that she loved French more than physics and wanted to major in French and literally just dropped out of school to start over in the fall in a new major. And so was that sexism that kept her out? No, she had the highest grades. We all thought she was cool. We all hung out with her like everybody else. The department certainly in no respect that I'm aware of was overwhelmingly male dominant, but I saw nothing like sexism. And this was in the nineties. So, you know, times have even progressed since then. And yet she ended up making a choice to not finish. And so we ended up having yet another all male class of physics graduates. Um, And I don't know how many stories are like this, but uh, I do know how often that a story like this would get chalked up to there must be some, the systemic thinking is, well, there must've been something systemic that caused her to feel sexism drove her to the brink. And I know that because I hear it from field after field, after field, after field, social work in particular is very strong with this, that when they go and they meet with a patient or a client uh, that they are to ask them the relevance of systemic oppression and then instruct them. If they say, well, it's not really relevant to my story to instruct them. No, 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 it really is. Let me tell you where it is and how it, how it operates. And so this I get concerned about the critical theory because it's an attempt to teach people to think that way rather than to rise above it. And all these stories are just stories, but you're talking about a leadership model that led to a very successful um, female candidate going into the, one of the most competitive and testosterone fueled uh, branches of, of air service and excelling and, Now we're comparing it against a leadership model. It says, well, if you think physics is hard, probably the department's sexist and it wasn't your fault. Yeah. And one of these does not lead to excellence. This is why I often say that I'm not racist enough to believe in critical race theory, because I, I can't think that it's possible that science is a white thing that only white people are really meant to to excel at and that black people are better off telling stories. I can't think that way. This, this yeah, is that, it goes offensive to everything it, right. that I can, can imagine. I agree. And, but I, that's the challenge is like, you can't even, and that's what's scary to me about it because, well, you're going to get shut down. You probably already have. It's like, well, it's easy for you to say, Mr. Middle-aged white guy. Right. <laughs> and, but I, yeah. I, it, but the danger to me is, and it drives me crazy is, is it, it not only drives crazy but it, it actually is con- it's disconcerting to me because i don't know where this ends and i don't think it ends pretty soon mm-hmm. and but just the, the fact that i can't even have a normal conversation with you or anybody who agree disagrees with me because I, i'll sit there and tell you all day long yeah i agree i acknowledge and affirm that racism uh is a problem in society it has been and that we are kind of living through the sins of 
which isn't that long ago in the grand scheme of time of, of slavery and Jim Crow. I mean, this is just a generation ago, you know, mm-hmm. and I had grandparents that, or not grandparents, but I had relatives that it was, you know, and I even had friends, um, uh, parents who, you know, regularly use the N-word and this and that. I mean, so I know it's real and it affirm it, but my gosh, it, it needs to be addressed. But I deny the fact that the way to, to address these real problems that need to be talked about and need to be approached in a very authentic and courageous way, that the way to do that is through this postmodern critical theory garbage. I, I think, right. it, if anything, it makes it worse. It, I think that's right. And, and, That's right. and I'm and I'm frustrated because I'm I don't know what to tell. I've had a couple of clients. I was telling you know, I was telling you this before the recording that a couple of clients is like, well, that's all great, Rich, and you know, but what do I do here? Because I've got these twenty five year olds who are ready to you know, I, I'm walking on eggshells, and I don't know what to tell them. You know, I don't know what to tell them. Yeah, that's the hard part is you end up with if you end up with enough of them, uh, you get mobbed. Right. right? So because you could in- be the most compassionate and reasonable person who disagrees with 10 people, you know, in a group of, say, 12 or 13 total. And you end up looking like the one jerk because of the, the degrees of social pressure that they can exert. Um in the moment, it's very difficult to, to convince people, uh, in, in settings that are not more one-on-one, uh, especially in this age now where everybody's afraid that somebody's going to go report them on social media and, uh, you know, I mean, it's subjecting them to shame mobs. So it's a very precarious situation. I do, I do know, I was speaking earlier with a group from, from South Africa and a young black woman asked me, uh, you know, how these kinds of things might be navigated, but it's the answer is more individual than in, when you end up with one of these groups in front of you. And in that case, I actually said that we, we really do have to start having a real reckoning about values. We have to start asking people yeah. about values like forgiveness yep. and growth. And we have to start, um, I honestly said that, that and imagine this and in this day and age, and I'm talking to a young black woman and I said that we need to start using humor around issues like race. I didn't say we should tell racist jokes. And in fact, I think we should not tell racist jokes, but I think racial jokes have a place. Jokes across the sex uh, difference have a place. Jokes across these issues of identity that are given in good, not racist, not sexist, not misogynist, but ones that have that good-natured probing of the boundaries, let's find and bond together, joking together. And it could be national difference. I'm from Appalachia. Just let them rip, buddy, you know? Let's <laughs> right, talk about exactly. some hillbillies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I actually look back as inspiration. If you know, where did you get this crazy idea that James is saying racist jokes? And I'm like, no, not racist. I actually got it from watching Black Comedians. And I grew up watching a lot of black comedians on television and on their specials. And I was very taken by them through the, especially the, the I mean, even in the eighties, but then also the nineties and into the early two thousands. I remember watching Richard Pryor when I was quite young. I remember watching Chris Rock. I was very into, you know, it was very inappropriate that I was like 12 and my favorite <laughs> comedian was Eddie Murphy. Right. Um, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, 
thing I was watching was Eddie Murphy Raw when I was like 12 and like yeah. hiding it from my parents. Right. Because it's like swear words every three three words or something. Yeah. And he's out in some like laser cut shiny suit. Yeah, and the, the leather suit. Yeah. Yeah, just so <laughs> ridiculous. And so um, then I watched uh, Bernie Mac and Steve Harvey and I watched these guys. And these guys made racial not racist. Yeah, I know jokes. what you're saying. I know what you're And saying. they brought up points about whiteness as a culture. You know, they even got their little voice. They're like, I'm going to go see what's going on. Right. You know, they got their stereotypical white voice and everybody laughs. And so they end up probing the issue with humor. They end up opening up that vulnerability, not through shame, not through guilt, not through these kind of negative emotions, but rather through the ability to kind of laugh at yourself. And there was always a sense where the joke went too far when it did, which sometimes it did. There was a guy that I went to college with who was actually, his ambition was to become a stand-up comedian and uh, his name was Rob. And he told some really good jokes, but he also told some real bombs. You know, he tested them on us. He was like, they can't all be winners, Rob. They can't (laughs) all be winners. And so, you know, sometimes they go too far, but these jokes, you know, they open up your mind. When humor is used right, they open up your mind. I think that humor, the comedy, is in fact the kind of light side of critical theory, whereas this guilt and shame model that we see is like the dark side. The idea is to get you to examine assumptions you don't realize you have or to get you to examine biases that you didn't know were present or to get you to look at culture in a new way that opens your mind. And humor, comedy, has been very effective at that. And it also softens the edges. You know, mm-hmm. I have friends. We have differences. Some I'm friends with women. I'm friends with black people. I know you're not allowed to be friends with black people anymore, but I am. And that difference is there. I actually watched a video earlier uh, on Twitter. I saw it, and I wish I could na- remember the author's name because she's just put out a book. But she says that the that it's about reducing offense taking. Don't be offended is the, is the general thrust. And she says diversity means people are going to say offensive things. And so you have to cultivate resilience and you also have to find ways to find forgiveness and so on. But I also think there needs to be probing that with humor. I think it's very important. So, you know, we joke back and forth around little racial type joke issues with across these and it creates a friendship. It yeah, also lets me put forth the matter of difference in a way with my friend where if I step too far, he knows I didn't mean anything by it. And if he steps too far, I know he didn't mean anything by it. And we're just trying to cut a joke and that one fell flat. And now there's space to have, Hey, that one fell flat. And here's, here's the sensitive, you know, wire that you hit. And here's why that one falls flat. I see where the joke was going and here's why that one's not funny, but here's why other ones are funny. You know, here's the funny way to say that. And it diffuses that tension. Yeah. It diffuses that, that guilt and shame are the wrong way to navigate. Oh, nothing again. good can come out of guilt and shame. And I agree with you 100%. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, it's so funny you brought that up because I was just thinking literally about that last week. And, you know, that comedians really are, I think in this day and age, they really are the courageous, the last bastion. Uh, the right. arbiters of truth and right. and, you, and you're thinking about it and you're right and you look at like i think dave Chappelle is probably the, the most brilliant like comedian. Chappelle, yeah. he's you know he's probably the most brilliant truth teller i think out there today you know he's brilliant he's excellent and, absolutely excellent i grew up watching his show too i forgot to name him yeah but you're absolutely that. right i mean i think that and i there's there is a subset and i know rogan's big on that too you know and that's why i like joe you don't even know he's a comedian sometimes, right? But I mean, mm-hmm. 
he he hits it it needs to be said and done and i i think that's if there's any kind of that gives me any sense of hope is that that kind of uh community or that that small subset of society and it's very small and elite right the good ones mm-hmm. right how many great comedians are there what a it's thousand hard. it's a hard craft yeah and of those i say there are a thousand maybe there's more but it's probably less than that. Like ones like, you know, that you would watch, like you would sit down and watch is probably like mm-hmm. 20. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, think about that. But I mean, they, they have tremendous power and responsibility. And I agree with you a hundred percent because, you know, and I think back to those times when I went into the, when I first went into the Marine Corps, my first Marine Corps squadron with flying. And I remember I was getting ready to go in and I said, well, and I asked, for advice. I said, what's your big advice as I, as I, as I hit, you know, I've got my wings, I'm going into the fleet. And invariably I had people say, learn to laugh at yourself and have a thick skin. And the people that succeeded, I mean, it was brutal. I mean, absolutely brutal. You talk about offensive. I mean, things that you just wouldn't, you could not believe were uttered by human beings to another person. Sure. But when you went through that gauntlet, and you came out on the other side, it, there was a an, a an appreciation and a uh, brotherhood, sisterhood, you know what I mean? Or a fraternity. Mm-hmm. I, I know maybe those are words that aren't going to sit well with a lot of people. But, you know, you get well, my point, yeah, you know. Of course, but, but there was there was there was a, a thing uh, there was and this sounds crazy, but there was a an element of bonding love underneath that if that makes that's sense. that's right that's right that's right um yeah that, that's that's definitely a key component that that you know is lost where everything's on eggshells where you're constantly oh. afraid that everybody's going to get reported for something or it breeds medi- it, mediocre and stagnant mediocrity and stagnation right which is it does what, right I, I mean even on the on the personal level though like you actually one of my daughters is gay and so well, she's bisexual, actually. So we um, kind of he, she would come out of her bedroom and see my wife and I like sitting together, cuddling or whatever on the couch. And she'd say gay. And <laughs> then, you know, it got to where now, you know, anytime she tells a mushy story, I'm like, gay, you know, <laughs> right. and then we're laughing back and forth. And so it's like any tension that might've been around the issue, the signal that gets sent is, um, I don't think that that's such a serious issue that we have to worry about it with each other. Right. Right. And, and, and that's a powerful signal that there's a lot of bonding in that signal. And then it becomes this, you know, whether it's inside or broader, you're not allowed to call something gay. I mean, that's the point of the joke is there's an irony that you're not allowed to call something gay in a derogatory sense. So now it's got this fake derogatory sense and you say it back and forth with a gay person and all of a sudden it's hilarious. And that diffuses the tension around the fact that there's now a taboo or a delicate Mm -hmm. issue without turning it into something like you're just going to go sling the slur in every direction. And this is the kind of thing that really, A, needs to be kind of brought back into the situation and B, um, tears the tears the critical monster apart because it can't stand the one thing it can't do is laugh at itself it has the thinnest skin and has no sense of humor yeah and that's and i can tell you from personally attesting and you know and again the and with my daughter and her being gay i mean it's this 
she's 21. I mean, she's 13, she told us. And we're like, okay. And it was like, it was no big deal. But every conversation as them, and the more that she got in, particularly when she went away, she went to college in the, on the West Coast in Laguna Beach. And man, and it's the, and it's the community. It's the online community and the surrounding. And if you read the Twitter feeds and all of this is, it's just, it's textbook. Um, mm-hmm. what the postmodernist and the critical theory, and it's like, and the more she got in, and I'm, I'm, and I don't say this lightly, but indoctrinated. I mean, I can, I mm-hmm. see the change. Uh, yep. And same, I, ca- I can't even have a conversation. And it's and, just, and, yeah, that's because you went totally wrong. You see, you were accepting, which means you didn't care enough to flip out. Yeah. I mean, that actually happened at my house. <laughs> that's what we got accused <laughs> of. You're like, I'm gay. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> You want to go check out chicks? And like, what do you want to do? And yeah. then it was like, my parents didn't even get mad. They don't care. And it's like, oh. yeah, it's like great mentality there. Well, I told and so. So, yeah, it's but with this indoctrination level, it's like they go off and it's not even that they go off to college because it's on their social media. It's it's the it's the, more the social media than it was. The it's college. it is. Yeah. It's the it's like they they operate in the social milieu where that's where status is. I talked to this guy. Again, Southern California. So you mentioned Laguna Beach. We're talking, you know, Orange County, in fact, with this kid. And I'm talking to him uh, on a long car ride. I ended up on one time in, uh, from Orange County back up to L.A. And uh, he's telling me that, like, it is his high school. It was like, well, I was like, he said, we go home every day and we pull out the yearbook. And we're, like, writing everybody's pronouns down next to their pictures so we can practice. Because whoever knows all the pronouns best is cool. And anybody who gets them wrong gets made fun of and gets shamed. And it's like that social environment where that's the thing that makes you like, you're the most attentive and, and sensitive and all of this to, you know, everybody's different identity concerns, which is focusing on your identity is ultimately a form of narcissism. Uh, it, it's just this unhealthy spiral Very where healthy. it's almost like everybody's indoctrinating themselves and each other into this um but it's very anti-therapy kind of mentality yeah, it, it, to the it, world. It, it does produce a tremendous amount, I think, of unhealthy mental. Uh, it's just unhealthy. And you hit on a great point that I think that that the systemic uh, postmodern theory where it's so dangerous is because it intentionally, or at least it seems from the surface, it seems intentionally to to not clarify. It, it intentionally muddies the waters for, for certain purposes. I mean, the more that you can muddy the waters with um, and the pronoun thing is a great example, right? I mean, that only benefits the postmodern or the systemic or the critical theory thinking, right? Am I am I hitting the head on that or not? Yeah. So, I mean, what two features are kind of coming up there? Well, several features of postmodern thought that are coming up there. I guess I was going to limit it to two, but there's at least three that just jumped out at me. So there is this intentional focus on the power of language, right? So right. if you get somebody's the language around a group wrong, then you're doing some massive form of oppression where we grew up with a liberal ethic of sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me. And kind of trying to, you know, develop that the thicker skin it has kind of the opposite. The power of language is supreme to where being called the wrong pronoun or the wrong name is uh, a form of violence, uh, literally construes. Wow. So that that's a second feature, which is the blurring of boundaries between different things. So, you know, a verbal slight versus an insult become the same thing. 
And then that's tantamount to a form of violence. Uh, and those all become the same thing. So the blurring of the boundaries between the categories of insensitive comment, verbal slight, insult, physical violence, like those are all blurred into a single bad category. So that's a postmodern thing that that's where you're really going to get the muddying of the waters. And then again, the the third thing that jumps out is that the postmodernism as a school of thought very, very intentionally seeks to devalue universal humanity and completely erase the the relevance of the individual and focus instead on group identity. Group identity is where knowledge is actually generated because each identity has its own unique culture. So there's gay culture, there's queer culture, there's bi culture, there's black culture, there's Hispanic culture. And again, it's one of those things you squint and you're like, yeah, to some degree, I see it. But for the most part, can't we all kind of like, isn't that like secondary? But it doesn't see that. It says that focusing on universal humanity erases the relevance of that group identity and focusing on individualism erases the significance of oppression based on that group identity because you're yeah. saying that it's some individual's responsibility for their own lives. So both of those are not allowed. So it muddies the waters in multiple ways to cause this sort of identity-based tribal type thinking. It is, in fact, if you for people who study this, and I'm not an expert in it, but some experts in it have reached out to me and written to me about it recently. It is actually a return to medievalism, where medievalism would have been that you had your particular, you know, whether it was religious sect or whether it was your feudal lord or your local community or whatever. You had these clans in particular across Scotland was famous for its clans. And they were very fragmented and balkanized and had a very difficult time relating to one another. And the, the clan identity became very important. So now they're forming clan identities in terms of these intrinsic identity factors, which in my opinion is literally the worst possible choice. If you're going to make clans, you know, family, okay, you know, whatever, but I, I demographic identity, I don't think you could possibly have chosen a worse uh, clan identity than that why but it's medievalism yeah i'm sitting here thinking as you're explaining that is like when you look at the great authors of this and and um particularly in the 60s but who who are today who are the leading authorities that you said foquet is it foquet or f-o-u-c-foucault f-o-u-c-e-t is that how he spells that f-o-u-c-a-u-l-t is he like the grand poobah of all of this like and is he alive he today? was he was the like big king of the postmodern thinking his most relevant writing would have been through the 1960s and then, then he died in the early 1980s so but we're living the but basically what we're seeing today can be attributed in large measure to him would you uh that the postmodern aspect yes, yes overwhelmingly we are living in his fever dreams about uh, about the nature of reality as far as the critical find fault in everything, we could pin primarily the blame on a very radical writer who most people don't recognize his name, Herbert Marcuse, who left Germany during World War II and became uh, significant at Columbia University. He wrote a very famous essay in 1965 called Repressive Tolerance. And Repressive Tolerance explains that, that we live in an emergency state where fascism could arise at any moment. This is just the state of the world from now on. So any idea or ideology like racism, sexism, and so on that might lead to fascism is fascism and has to be 
viciously met with intolerance. So this burning intolerance of disagreement actually is mostly attributed to Herbert Marcuse, who whose thought bled in so into uh, through various uh, very radical activists that he inspired in the 1960s. Um, so what, we're living in his fever dreams too. And so what? Uh, what and what do you think is like why why? And I know you're not a psychologist, and neither am I. But why so passionate about that? And what is the end game for them? And why do they think that this was the answer? I mean, because traditionalism or even the Enlightenment period seems to have. I don't know. Maybe that's not a fair assessment either, because I. I, mean, uh, I, I what what the what's the attraction? Is it because human beings we don't when things get difficult we don't like it. Um, we don't want to do the hard work or is it laziness? Is it, um, I, I resentment? Is it anger? I, that's the one it's resentment. I think what I find with people who are, are deep into these theories is that you typically only have to scratch the surface, the slightest amount, and you find green, you find just raging envy. Why don't I get the spoils of society? Why do I have to? As, as your daughter phrased it, why do I have to bust my ass and get nowhere? You see so much of that. And it's funny, you know, you look as an adult at a 21 year old and it's like, honey, no 21 year olds are getting anywhere. There's, there's like 10 of them, but unfortunately you follow all of them on Instagram and you're jealous of them. Uh, so uh, there's a ton of envy. Um, Marcuso was very envious of, I mean, if you, you could actually get into their own, pathologies marcusa was very upset in fact that he tried to stop the nazis with a communist revolution that didn't work and so then he tried to figure out why that didn't work and it's because communism sucks but he couldn't admit that so then he came and uh started to look at society as one that had foiled his dreams because of all of these stupid people who don't understand how bad they have it and that are willing to latch onto things. And so he's envious of these stupid people who get to have good lives and see their work play out. Uh, Michel Foucault was a gay man who was vigorously rejected for being gay. In fact, he wasn't just gay. He was into all kinds of um, things that under many umbrellas would be described as perversions. And uh, he, he was never accepted for that. His father wanted him to be a doctor and he had no interest in being a doctor. So he had massive tension with his father. He wasn't accepted for who he was. And so then he comes up with a set of theories that basically says why uh, his two focuses were on, on insanity and on homosexuality and how society has basically mistreated those people forever. And so there you can see grievance, maybe more than envy. Uh, but the grievance is often the envy mm -hmm. for yeah. a peaceful, more simple, straightforward existence. And anytime you start separating into the oppressed versus oppressor classes, you see that the oppressed have the envy of the so-called oppressor, which of course is an oversimplification of real social dynamics that are very challenging to understand and even more challenging to kind of mitigate because you can't rectify them. There will always be hierarchy. There will always be elements of, of stratification. Some people will be lucky. Uh, maybe in, in the final analysis, it's always a matter of luck. Um, 
that you were born with the right talents, the right parents, the right circumstances, you were in the right place at the right time, and you had all the right opportunities to make yourself a success. Maybe it's always a matter of luck, but some people will will end up succeeding to greater degrees. They'll hit upon the great idea of selling books on the internet like Jeff Bezos and be worth $200 billion (laughs) because who doesn't want to buy books on the internet? Like everything just show up at your house tomorrow on the internet. And then other people will not hit upon those ideas or hit upon them first and therefore will not have those opportunities. And so there's always going to be unfairness and stratification in life. And it's very easy to tap that resentment button. I mean, I saw this video of the one of the socialist members of the Seattle city government just having this maniacal rant, like almost this weird droning cult voice. It's like, we see you, Jeff Bezos. We see you with the Amazon tax. We are going to dismantle your business. We are going to dismantle your society. You, you're, and it's like this whole, you're robbing our communities, blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, holy crap, you know, the, the scratched surface and green just pours out the yeah. envy. Um, and of course, the liberal view is that we can find ways to try to make as many games positive sum as possible because that benefits everybody. It raises all ships. Whereas this is a very zero sum, you have what I want and I can't have it because you have it uh, way of thinking. And then to put that off of the idea of personal responsibility into group responsibility makes it even easier to rest in that, that, that envy. So I think that at the very bottom, it's, it's mostly, mostly envy. Yeah, I, um, I agree. You, you hit it on the head. I think that that made a lot of sense to me. It was interesting. You're giving me the kind of historical context of, of what was going on pathologically with them. And it makes sense. I mean, it, it does go it. And you're right. I think envy and jealousy is, it's just one of those basic raw ingrained emotions that it, that it's hard to shake, you know? I mean, academically speaking, you look at these kind of theorists, the postmodernists and their, their, their descendants, scholarly speaking. And what had happened from the late 19th century forward was that science really got its feet under it it really started to do stuff. It really started to transform the world and science, the prestige of science, especially by the 1950s. I mean, science was the thing, everything, right? It was everything. Like you're talking like rocket ships and you know, everything's like, yeah, it's like science. It's a brave new world. Yeah. Yeah. And there was this huge, I mean, very easy to find documented uh, jealousy in the Academy by philosophers and other humanities scholars who did not have the same prestige that science did. And so one of the things that they actually intentionally sought to do was to create very specific jargon, very specific uh, scientifical sounding terminology that only (laughs) they they understand rather than talking to the human condition in ways that humans understand within the humanities. And so there was this weird science envy because science was becoming the, the, forefront of human knowledge and they felt like what they were doing was a different kind of knowledge that wasn't being acknowledged and that's another form of you know academic status envy wow and there's a reality to that because the, yeah, the I sciences can see that. Yeah. produce and the humanities are beautiful they produce something different and if if you lean into that envy though what you end up is with, with stuff like gender studies gender studies is yeah. the humanities no longer doing humanities at all, pretending to do sociology, but without the rigor of sociology. So it lives in this valley of impoverishment academically. It's not human. 
It's not interesting as a humanities. It's not science, but it demands to be treated like a science. So it lives in this valley of impoverishment that just makes it more envious and just makes it want to assert itself even, even more vigorously uh, as, as something that must be taken seriously or else you're some kind of a bad person. Yeah. Um, and I really do think that envy is at the bottom of this. This I is a movement right. of resentment. I think you're right. And I think knowing that and having that clarity on that at least helps maybe kind of, uh, I think, Knowing that, I think it helps address what, what, how do you tackle it. I don't know. It's not easy. Yeah, I do too, because envy has been something that people have had to attack and tackle, I should say, in, in many contexts throughout all of history. And so whether it's, you know, for yourself and leadership, once you know what the diagnosis is, you can start looking for the cure. There are ways to deal with creating a culture of positivity that, that doesn't mm-hmm. really you valorize resentment. I mean, it's, and the, you, it's the Cain and Abel story. You can go back, you know, it's, it's the Cain and Abel exactly story, right? You know it's, what I mean? It's exactly right. I've been trying to tell people that forever. So I'm so glad you just latched onto it for like months. I figured out that it's the Cain and Abel story. And I was like, ah, it's Cain and Abel. And people are like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. So I'm so glad you saw that. What about Robin D'Angelo and the white fragility? What do you think? I think she's, I think she's a huckster. I don't know if she's a huckster or if she's mentally ill. I think, but she, I don't. I don't have any other options available to but me. But do you think? Um, she, but do you think she wrote that because she feel because she's she's a a byproduct or even I hate to use the word victim, but I can't think of it or a victim of the post all of this kind of. Ideology? So her thinking is very postmodern. Uh, she has been seduced by that line of thought. If she's a huckster, she just realizes that it's useful for making herself a prime yeah, business maybe, consultant. Yeah, I'm, 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 as I'm thinking about it out loud, she's probably less of a huckster. And, I, she, and she's I don't want to get you in trouble, so I won't ask you the question of if you've done the work, if you've read White Fragility. But I've read White Fragility a couple of times all the way through, and I've read portions of it probably a hundred times beyond that because of having to cite it or look up a certain passage or whatever. Uh, I read the chapter on white women's tears, chapter 11, like probably 12 times and in its entirety, it's a, it's a real doozy. And so here's what you get the impression of when you read Robin D'Angelo, Robin, Robin D'Angelo has very strong racist biases that she doesn't know how to deal with personally. And so she has written a theory that says rather than that she happens to be struggling with her own racism, that all white people struggle with racism. Yeah. And that sense is clear in the book. It's very clear in the book. And there is a, when I said mentally ill, I don't mean that in some like derogatory sense. I I don't feel that way about mental illness in any respect. Um, There is a specific form of obsessive compulsive disorder that shows up in typically moral or religious contexts called scrupulosity. It's an obsession with feeling morally scrupulous, according to some set of beliefs about the world. And having had not personal, but having seen some cases up close of uh, people who suffered scrupulosity in the religious context several years ago, uh, a few close friends of mine oddly enough, in different branches of Christianity, uh, one Mormon, one Catholic, and one uh, Protestant in a rather strict Protestant Southern Baptist tradition. Uh, the self-scrupulosity in all three of those cases, and I learned that that's what it's called. When I read Robin D'Angelo, I see scrupulosity about her trying to deal with the moral issue of 
race. And I don't necessarily think that the woman's a racist. I say that, but uh, I don't think that it's so much that she's properly a racist. No, but in I, her I mind, noticed it, in, in her mind, she you know, she's grappling with what. Well, she... I'll, here's my guess. I, I I actually noticed this five or six years ago before I even knew about Robin D'Angelo with certain people in the kind of social justice movement as it was emerging around me. And I got this distinct impression. I, I even said this once publicly and I think I got in trouble for it. I said, you know what they remind me of is that they're, they're it's like they go out and they're walking down the street and they're walking down the sidewalk. And then a black guy walks by the other direction and they're like black guy in their head. They mm-hmm. just think they don't say it. They just think black guy. And then they're like, Oh my God, I noticed. Oh my God. I noticed <laughs> right. he's black. Right. Oh no. I noticed black. I'm not supposed to notice race. I'm supposed to be colorblind. I'm, I'm not supposed to notice race. I saw a black guy. Oh my God. And then they go to their, their apartment and write a 10,000 word screed on mm-hmm. the internet about how terrible racism is because they're trying to deal with the fact that they noticed race and think that they shouldn't have noticed race right. and have unrealistic beliefs about what, constitutes a reasonable amount of noticing race and an unreasonable amount of noticing race. And that projection of that onto all people, I think that Robin D'Angelo is probably somebody who notices race far more than she's comfortable with. And she doesn't know how to deal with those feelings. And so she's created a philosophy that, that externalizes that. That's a uh, great observation. That's a great observation. I think you, I think you nailed that. I think you're absolutely right. I, I, and I think that probably goes for a lot of people. Um, you know, when you see the, the the people at the protests and, you know, they're they're screaming at the face of something, just going totally ape shit, you know, losing their mm-hmm. mind screaming. I think that has to be part of it, right? Because a normal I, – I just wouldn't do that, right? You know, you and I, if someone's like, what? And we would examine ourselves and we would look and then – but I think the next step that, that we're not doing that – but after listening to you and, and kind of – I think now's the time is just like, no, I, I'm not. You know what I mean? Like when right. somebody tells me that I am a racist, I, I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not. Yeah. And I'm not. I, I, I checked. I, Thank you. I checked. Yeah. <laughs> it's I'm okay. Not. And, I'm not. And I, and I, yeah, I bring up the white privilege in the Beverly D'Angelo because I had a, and I won't say her name, but I mean, another kind of peer of mine, and we were going to collaborate on something before all this kind of, went haywire very respected and love her thinking and really can let's collaborate let's do some stuff and then george floyd thing happened right Mm -hmm. and this is the tragedy i think and you see something like george floyd something that in the beginning you know should bring everybody together and have allow us to have and 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 deal with the real issues of racism and thought and the challenges of slavery and the growth patterns that we need to do and address it from you know 150 years ago and beyond but it got hijacked i feel it, it too totally got hijacked and if i was an african american and if i was in that, i would i would be so pissed off right now i yeah i would too of course we're not allowed to empathize in that way. No, uh, which is another problem with the critical theory that you're. Oh, you're going to speak for black people. Well, I can tell you right now, I would be pissed off. I'm, I, I'm, I'm pissed off kind of on their behalf. Although I even uh, I, it, what stops me from being that is I'm being told I'm not allowed to be that right. because of I, I because of this friggin' theory. Um, 
it, the, so when I talked to Joe, you know, when we talked about Black Lives Matter near the beginning of the show, I said that I feel like there's at least five of them and four of them have stolen the thing mm-hmm. from the one moment of actual, we actually had a moment of tremendous unity absolutely. Even politically, even the far right and the far left absolutely. are simultaneously looking on this event and thinking, all right, something's messed up. Yeah. Time to fix some stuff. And um, then it got lost. And so you you have this moment saying, hey, look, our experience is different than yours. Listen to us. And all of a sudden, a world ready to listen. And then you have these literally openly saying that they're neo-Marxist. Hey, comrades, we're going (laughs) to make this about this, you know, radical queer liberation, black feminism movement. And if you're not on board with this, you're a racist. Then you have these Antifa thugs going around, like starting riots. And I say Antifa is a stand-in for all of these kind of anarchist groups. I guess there are several of them, but yeah, just go around. But and it's the whole o- Occupy Wall Street too, you know, part due. Yeah. And, and then you have these, these like white, almost all white people who basically just lost their minds. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. They just lost their minds and they're start, they're like crying and they're like a, pissing all their feet. black friends off by calling them and apologizing. Yeah. Like I've oh, been racist God. my whole life. Like way to make that relationship weird. Man. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. uh, we, we were friends until you just got that weird. Uh, and then you've got the, the corporate side of it, just cashing the hell in. Um, it's like four different aspects of just totally hijacking this mm-hmm. out of control uh, real problem. And it's, a, it's a tragedy. I mean, I see that as, it as, is a as the real, the real tragedy. Every time I read these articles and it lists all of the names and it's like, again and again, it's like this empty mantra of listing all of their names now. And it's like, I just, you know, I get it. And at the same time, I kind of roll my eyes. It's like, you've lost It's like, I saw somebody very early on say something like, Oh, we're burning down another building for George. What's his name? you know and it's like the whole thing just got lost in this this rush to fill the void with radical activism that has been cooking up and i i I kid you not has been waiting i'm not a conspiracy theorist but they they do you even had the new york city chancellor of schools richard carranza say we're not going to let this crisis go to waste and like leaping on this to try to push an agenda and just stealing it away from what it needed to be. Yeah. It's just totally selfish. It's totally. And again, it, it goes, I mean, it's a tinderbox. It was like a perfect storm. You know, you got a vacuum of leadership at, at, you know, the, the political level, which again, just didn't appear overnight. That vacuum has existed for a long time. Right. It's produced, you know, this kind of clown show that we've witnessed over the last, particularly the last, you know, three and a half years, but even beyond, before that, I mean, um, yeah. it's it's just been yeah. building to this moment. There's no real authentic, transparent leadership. There's no real authentic, transparent, vulnerable conversations happening at, at the major level. Um, and that's why I applaud, you know, what stuff that you're doing, what, you know, what Jordan Peterson's doing, what, um, you know, the list goes on, I guess, I don't know, the intellectual dark what what is it called? The dark web of uh, yeah, intellectual, intellectual dark, web. dark web or something, <laughs> something like yeah, that. Yeah, they never but, let me in, so I don't know what that's about. <laughs> right, but I, I don't know. I think the conversations need to start happening. I think I think there's more. I would like to believe there's more. Um, that there there's a larger presence of people who who are thinking like this than not. 
it just seems so, like of the vast the, the, there's been a very vocal minority that is that is disrupting everything, which is almost like every revolution, to be quite honest. Sure, yeah. of course. So there is, I think, a real fear there around how much traction and how they can get, and how many institutions they can hollow out, and how many relationships they can pointlessly destroy in the short term. Um, but ultimately, I think, hopefully, my hope, if I try to be optimistic about this, is that. A lot of people are actually saying things like what you're saying right now, which is, you know, I keep hearing people say I've been forced, you know, they're saying things that are like, you know, all right, all I've had to, all I've been allowed to do for like a month and a half is talk about race and think about race. I've literally never thought about race so much in my life. So maybe they had a point. Maybe I didn't think about race enough, but you know what? I've thought about race now and nope, I'm not racist. I wasn't racist before. I'm not racist now. And now I don't want to think about race anymore. And can we just go back to not thinking about race and can this nonsense? And I think there's a very rapidly growing segment of the population. Now, the hopeful side of that that I have is that we've now had enough of a taste of this view of the world to where people can do what I do. And I noticed this very poignantly in March or no, February, I was in Washington, D.C. And I noticed this very, very poignantly. And all of a sudden I realized um, whether or not I was racist before doesn't matter. I don't think I was. Uh, But I'm certainly less racist than ever before now because I see the critical race interpretation everywhere I look Mm -hmm. and say no. Yeah. No, I I see... I go out for a walk. I notice somebody, this happened the other day, of another race walking by. And I see that race, whereas before I don't know that I really would have cared. Now I have to mm-hmm. see it. I can't not see it. Thanks a lot, guys. And I think, no, doesn't matter. Well, I think- so that process happens yeah. because this has been injected into so many of our heads. And maybe that is the dose of penicillin that pushes us in the right direction. I like how you said that because I never, I never thought of it in that, that way, but I think you're right. And I think that is if, again, a takeaway, like what can I do individually to do that is, is it's just like anything else. It's, it's self-awareness. And it's like, it sometimes it seems once you become self-aware on anything, on a leadership on a personal growth aspect, and you say, for example, the limiting beliefs that are in your head and you, you never really thought about it before, but when you become, you turn the volume up, and my God, the volume's kind of loud. Um, that's normal to kind of be freaked out by that. And to your point, is like, yeah, thanks guys for, but maybe that's the dose of penicillin. And it's it's to me, is what what you just said is like same thing. Like when I personally, or even when I coach somebody about to get past a limiting belief, and realizing that beliefs are neither right or wrong, they're either empowering or they're limiting. And to your point, as you're walking and you see that, and it's like, okay, the poison culture that is as brought this to my forefront and oh i see race now but that it just seems crappy to you because the volume's louder but then you have the wherewithal of like hey no i know i'm not if anything it's like a, a dose of penicillin to remind you that you're not yeah right that's and, right and that's, that's right and that's the intentional self-discipline i think we all have to do and to have the courage and the foresight to say no this is to call insanity insanity Right. And now I know that sounds easy to do because particularly what's frightening to me, you see, you know, Evergreen State College scenario, which is absolutely frightening to me that, you know, we're all trying to avoid another Evergreen State College scenario. Right. Right. Or or have the mob show up on our doorstep and and 
effectively destroy our, our lives, you know, but, yep. but I, I, what other choice do you have? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's scary because you, you, you and I'm a student of history and you study all these. And, and that's what frightens me is that people don't think those type of things can happen. And even when I bring it up, people think, Oh, that's just crazy. That's conspiracy. Theory, right. But I'm mm-hmm. sure there were people in Nazi Germany that were kind of going along going, what the fuck is going on here? You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, <laughs> and they're like, hey, guys, I don't think this is smart. Right? Oh, shut up. Just get in line. Right? And then the next thing you know, you're ignoring the smokestacks, you know, of the burning bodies. You know what I mean? Right, right, I right. mean, it can happen. And yeah, I'm not, the and parallels I'm not, are, are really stark at this point to some of those really dark moments. I think the parallels, in fact, to, to Mao's Cultural Revolution are, are overwhelming. Very frightening. Um, very similar. And again, I, you you bring it up in normal conversation, they think you're a kook. And again, it's not that I, I just I fear for. I fear for common sense and and, and liberty, you know. And again, sure. I'm not, I, and I'm not Me, a, a right wing. And see, that's the other thing too. I think I I was listening to something. Maybe that you said a lecture. And I think it's important that you know the idea of liberalism has just gotten so poisoned. I mean, the true mm-hmm. liberal just doesn't even exist. Or at least in the forefront, right? When you say liberal, right. that that's even kind of like, oh, what a you know bad word. But a true mm-hmm. liberal is all about personal freedom and, and liberty and individual and the and the unalienable right and in, inalienable rights, right? Of life, liberty, right. and the pursuit of happiness, right? Am I saying that's that right. right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, there's been a massive erosion of that, and uh, maybe it's partly because we've been able to be so comfortable for so long and not have to assert that we could just take it for granted. And uh, I think that there is this now space in which, I mean, this stuff spread both institutionally, which is the real fight, and then individually one person to another through culture. I think there's, there's, you know, I'm generally optimistic. That which has been done can generally be undone socially or whatever. You can kind of go the other direction. And so I think that if people start deciding, okay, you know what? You said do the work. I did the work. Uh, I took my personal responsibility, I did it, and now I'm going to treat people as individuals and you're just going to have to deal with it. Um, Yeah. And start spreading that ethic again. It's like, look, okay, I listened. And that was a fair request. And now your conclusion is that we're going to treat people as groups. I reject that. Yep. We're going to treat people as individuals because I understand now why that's much better. And it's like somebody asked me the other day, they said, well, what do you say if, if somebody comes at you and says that you're racist? You know, I just kind of like didn't dive into the question deeply, but it's like, there's a part of me that's like in the right context waiting for somebody. They're like, well, you're ignoring the oppression of, you know, that group or whatever. And it's like, there's a part of me that's waiting for that to happen. <laughs> where Somebody's like, you're racist because you ignore the oppression. You don't know what life is like for such and such a race. And I'm like, I'm the racist because I think that an individual black person can competently succeed against adversity. It seems like the per- believing in the person who can succeed against ad- adverse adversity is the opposite of having a derogatory view of them. Yeah. It seems like that's... That's, that's a believing more in them that something that they've suffered has made them stronger and, and maybe even in some ways better uh, because it's harder. Like you like the woman in, in, in F 15 school, it's harder to go against the culture that doesn't 
accept you. And if you can excel in that, that requires true excellence. So I'm racist for thinking that black people can be excellent and rise up against this oppressive culture that you say is the problem and still succeed. I'm the racist. Whereas no, yeah, no, you've got this all backwards. Yeah. Um, And I think that, I don't know. It's if I can get to this, and, and you can get to this. Other people can get to this. Well, I think it's important to. Re- I don't even know what your political leanings are, but I don't think you're not. You're not uh, conservative, are you? I mean, what would you? No. How, you're you're fairly progressive and liberal. If, if right? uh, yeah, if you put me on that stupid test, you know, the left right political compass or whatever, I'm pretty far over close to the left edge, as a matter of fact. Well, um, I, I don't think of myself in terms of labels. I don't so either, I, and I and I apologize for bringing it up, but no, just just for the, just for the sake of because people because it's so ingrained in every in every day. Thank you. Actually, right? this is a key point to what we're talking about because there is a descriptive sense in which I'm on the left. Like if you gave me the test, you sat me down, and said, "Here's all the policy procedure or policy proposals. This is what do you think about this issue? What do you think about that issue? How do you think about these things? Whatever." And you gave me the test, and we figured out where I fall. I'm going to fall pretty far to the left. However, I don't identify as the left. I don't take that label unto myself. Right. I don't let that label guide my uh, thinking. That's such a great. Point. It just as ha- happens to be where I am. This is true in in my my belief is how it should be true. I should say about people's identity. Yeah. So you're gay. Okay, great. That's where you happen to land in the world. It's a descriptive label and it means something in terms of that descriptive label. And the second you start to identify with your descriptive label, label, that descriptive label starts changing who you are. And you don't have to do that. You absolutely don't have to do that. And again, I still think it's bigotry is believing that there is some significance in that descriptive, that, that Amen. I, you know, demographic descriptive label. Perfect. And you don't have to lean into that. You can just let it be a fact of the world. It's the exact opposite of the advice that's given in yep. the foundational texts of this social justice oriented scholarship, which is this, to take up an identity first uh, identification strategy for doing identity politics versus taking up a either individualist or universal humanity uh, based or both, which is the liberal perspective. It's just, I honestly, you know, Helen, my, my, my person who, who wrote cynical theories and who did the, the fake academic papers with me other than Pete, um, Helen has a, has a way of phrasing things. It's just so brilliant. And she says that the liberal approach, or the liberal view of homosexuality is this. Some people are gay get over it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's it's right. just a fact about the world. You don't have to do anything with it. Let them live their lives as they want to live their lives, support them in the way that is necessary to do that. And you don't, it doesn't have to be complicated. And so I advocate for this. I advocate for, I think that the most boring thing in the world about a person is their identity factors. Amen. So I get these emails from people that are like, Oh, a sensitivity trainer came to my job. And our sensitivity trainer was like, oh, so-and-so is gay. So let's all learn about what being gay is about. Oh and like, let's make it all about this. And it's like, and then for a month afterwards, every single day, people are coming up and asking me awkward questions about my sex life. And, oh you know, God. how do you do this? Or what do you do that? And it's like, yeah. I don't want to talk about this at work. What's going on? And then people are like, oh, my religion hates people like you. And I'm struggling with that. And I just wanted to let you know. And it's like, thanks for making that relationship uncomfortable. Now yeah, forever. now everything's weird. And it's like let somebody's identity be 
mostly boring. Like, I don't understand. They're like, oh, wow. I can't even picture myself sitting down with somebody who, you know, I have a conversation and then my friend, actually, this happened to me in graduate school. This guy I was friends with, where I, he lived in the same apartment complex I did, but he didn't have a car and I was driving him back and forth to school every day or work, I guess, whatever, to, to the college. And um, one day he gets this, all this dramatic error in the car and he's like, I have to tell you something. And I was like, what? He's like, I'm gay. And I was like, I know. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, you can tell. And he's like panicked. I was like, no, I was just messing with you. I just don't care. I literally, what does that matter? We're friends. Who cares? And he was totally relieved at the time, you know, it was at different times, 2002 or three or whatever. But it's like, how weird would it be to be like, wow, you're gay. Tell me what being gay is like. I want to know all about your gayness. Yeah. That's such a weird way to engage in life. It's yeah. like my daughter's like, you know, I'm bisexual. I'm like, okay, so if you bring home a girl, I'm not going to be like, I got no memo on this, but all right, whatever. As opposed to, you know, wow, tell me about that. Let's make this really weird and uncomfortable. You know, it's, it's such a stupid way to imbue that. No, I mean, I, I mean, that, so that, much significance. That's what I mean. I, that goes to the challenge I had with my daughter, you know, and it. It was great in the beginning and it just got sideways over the last three years, more to the social justice stuff. Right. But it was just, but I mean, I get it. I get it. You yeah. should say if you're having, like I have, I have friends who are black and then we're talking, we're hanging out or whatever. And then sometimes something will come up and it'll be like, yeah, that's not, it's, it's like, that's not easy for black people. And I'm not saying like I said something weird or it's just like, you know, a situation gets described, like, well, you know, black people kind of have a different perspective of that and because of this and then they talk about the racism. So some of that, you know, you do want to understand that. And if it's gay, you know, well, here's the bigotries that we face. My daughter being bisexual is like, well, you know, the gay people don't like us and the straight people don't like us. <laughs> right. and, see us this. and so hearing some of that struggle is fine, but then focusing on that being the primary element of what's interesting about a person is, is a catastrophe. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, and that's where I, I, I kind of fall down the line. For me, it's about, I think the obligation that all of us have as human beings is, is we need to make the campsite better than we found it. I mean, if there's any calling, whatever it is, it's like, I need to leave this place a little better than I found it. And that means a whole yep. host of things. But the point is, if I look at every transaction with another human being, you know, if I'm going having lunch with you, I need to be intentional about how can I make this of value for James? And now maybe yeah. that sounds a little too complicated and, 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 and I suppose that can lead to weirdness too. But I mean, I don't mean I, I, I have a plan, sure, but sure, I sure, try sure. to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going, oh, okay, I'm having lunch with James today. Okay. I'm going to make a point to, listen to his stories, you know, or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, of course. You know, how, how can of I course. add value to James's life, you know, and be, at least be aware of that. And I think that's, that's the way that it needs to be. And I, and that's why I bring up the, you know, and if I took the test, the stupid test, and I don't like these labels either. I would be, um, libertarian conservative. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're, uh, and I, again, I hate the labels things. You're atheist. I'm not. Um, who cares? You see what I'm saying? And like, yeah. I, and that, and here we are, you know, two hours into a conversation. Right. And, and that's the way I think. And like, and you and I could be fast friends. I just know it. You know, like you and I could share life together just based on this conversation. Right. Yeah, sure. Of course. And that's, and that's what I think is important. That, that Right. 
And so you having all these different perspectives and Rich's mind and vice versa, if we ever get into those topics, we don't have to, if we're hanging out, having a barbecue, it's like, wow, good burgers, man. And I don't know what it has to do with anything, anything. but if we're not having a barbecue and it's like, well, you know, on that thing, you know, my faith really, really uh, informs me in a certain way. I get to listen to something in a way that I don't normally think. Right. And so I'm totally excited to hear stuff like that and open to hear stuff like that. Um, so I, I, it's again, the, 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 as that lady, I wish I could name her. It's so, so shameful that I can't think of her name, but I only just stumbled across her today. She's got the book. She says, you know, that, the, that, um, you know, these, these moments of difference, which can include offense are the price of a diverse society. And yeah. we want a diverse society because that's where richness and development and, and growth and opportunities and sharing. There's so much that's, value and absolutely. richness there. And in fact, you know, there's a saying when, we, when we're flying airplanes, when I'm, when I'm the captain and I'm flying with somebody new. And one of the things that I say in the brief, you know, the last thing I say to them, it says, I don't care what you think is happening, how, what you think your perceptions of me. If you think I'm smart, aloof, I'm in the game, I'm out of the game, whatever the case, it's not your right to challenge me. It's your obligation. It's an obligation to challenge mm-hmm. me. And I love that as a philosophy for life, right? I say that to my kids. I say that to my spouse. I say that to everybody I'm working with. It's not your right to challenge, meet your obligation. From an aviation standpoint, don't let me land with my gear up. Don't let me crash into the mountain. Don't let me run out of gas because there are numerous mishaps where that happened because people didn't didn't challenge. And there's obligation there on both sides. There's an obligation for the receiver. As you do challenge me that I don't lose my shit and make you feel less than. And it's the obligation on me to have the courage to speak up. That's right. I mean, that's, that's the Chernobyl story right there. Yeah, for sure. People failing that obligation until something horrible happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have to be able to challenge this. This is a a problem here. You can't challenge people across identity, lest that, you know, bigotry be, be spotted in in that situation. Well, catastrophe. Yeah. I think the takeaways, I think from this, I I think if we say, well, what do we do with this? We said a lot of stuff and I don't know if we were complaining or whining. I don't think we were, I think we were just trying to, we were trying to bring light to some things that I think a lot of people are feeling. But I think for me, what I got from you is that we need to stand firm. I think that's fine. Having the awareness that that, that's again, self-reflection, personal growth. We can't let those things go. Because freedom is at stake here. Personal liberties are at stake. This is why it's important and it's not a conspiracy theory that's not this. I mean, but but just common sense and decency of treating each other with respect. But to stand firm and to be courageous, and I do think this day and age it does demand a great deal of courage. And so I think you're being courageous, James, and the things that you're doing and the people that you're surrounding yourself with and you're speaking the truth. But I think that's what we have to do. I don't know what else I can tell my clients and the people looking to me for what do we do as leaders i think this is the time that you got to stand firm because the answer to this to your point i think what you i heard you say and i think the solution to this doesn't mean it's easy is that you have to be principled and that's why all this stuff will eventually eat itself because it's not principled that's right right and right and, and so this is the time to be principled but it does scare me because it doesn't mean it's it, it can still get messy and pretty gross and scary but what other choice do we have? Right. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I think that that's, that's actually the thing is people really, you know, I was, I was thinking about it recently and I thought people are asking me every day, how in the world did this happen? How did this happen? 
And why aren't, how do you deal with it? And why aren't you crazy? And all of this stuff I get asked all the time, how do you not go crazy? And I, I thought about it and, um, it's, it's because I have principles. I have a North star. Mm -hmm. I've, I know who I am and I'm confident in being who I am. That's why on, on Joe Rogan's show, I was so near the end, I started talking about how important authenticity is. Mm -hmm. It's a process of learning to know who you are. And it's actually in the doubt of not knowing who you are, where something like, don't you think that was a little bit racist? If you know who you are, you don't get vulnerable. You're like, no, it wasn't. What are you talking about? But if you don't know who you are, that vulnerability is there and you can be manipulated on that kind of thing. So I think people do need to find their kind of principled North stars. What do you believe in? If you're libertarian conservative, you have certain principles that you believe in. If you're not libertarian conservative, you have slightly different ones. If you're liberal on the left, you have slightly different ones. And that's fine. Everybody can have their own matters of you know personal conscience or whatever. But you really, it's almost like, it's a silly exercise, but a valuable exercise to do that I've kind of done. So I don't want to sound like a hypocrite because I'm like, oh, I, this is great. But I haven't quite, I played with it, but I didn't finish it, uh, is to write a personal constitution. Mm -hmm. Who am I? What do I believe? It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be complicated. Mm -hmm. How do I believe we should treat other people? How do you, how do I believe, you know, what do I think about the issue of race for real? And it, it, this could be something that you write down on a word document and then delete. It could be something you write down on a piece of paper and set on fire. Nobody ever has to see what you wrote. It can just be for you or it can be something you, you actually keep and refer back to, which would be ideal uh, and update as you go. But setting a personal constitution, knowing where your North star is, figuring out who you are and why you have the right to believe that you're a good, if imperfect and actually being accepting imperfection is part of being good. Right, I agree. Uh, person and, and you know mapping out that north star i think is something that people are are missing uh and probably a lot of people are missing and so i would encourage people to do that because it lets you find your feet it lets you have a clear-eyed vision about these things and then when you meet these inevitable challenges where maybe you did say something that was racist or you went too far or maybe somebody accused you of it unfairly you can say you know let me check. And now you have a guideline against which you can check. Did I hold to my principles or did I slip? If I slipped, I need to correct. If I didn't slip, that's the way the ball bounces sometimes, guys. And uh, it gives you, it gives you, I mean, even just the process of taking 20 minutes or an hour to think. Yeah, the intentionality. It, I agree. That, that intentionality, it, it changes it. It's like I wrote that one essay on New Discourses, The Woke Breaking Point, where mm -hmm. I think that people, because people's principles tend to slip and then you rationalize it after the fact. So you start rationalizing riots all of a sudden and you don't know what for your friends are like, why are you rationalizing riots? And then that gulf between people has really grown so big that they can't talk to one another. If you take the time and a breaking point is one thing, but the principle constitution is another, but there's in the same vein of things, everybody should be taking the time to say, you know what, if this movement, maybe I agree with the woke project i don't personally you seem not to in in total but parts of it but if this project gets to the point where say i was going to say something extreme like they ripped down george washington statue but they already did that you know pick something though <laughs> right. if they get to the point where they do x that's too far and the reason you have to do this before x happens 
is because you can't as easily rationalize away something that you stood principled about a few weeks before mm-hmm. or a few months before or a few years before. So if you say my principles are that if they set fire to, you know, the Capitol building or whatever it happens to be, that's a bridge too far. I'm out. Um, if they fire, you know, so-and-so that's a bridge too far. I'm out. Uh, and then that happens. You don't have the ability to kind of do, eh, well, the circumstances were, eh, well, because you've already said to yourself, you've committed to something. Yeah. And I think that's very, very important when you have the possibility of a slippery uh, slope. Normally, I don't think society is a slippery slope to, ter- to, to terrible things. But right now, I think we do stand on a slope that's pretty slick. And yeah, yeah. putting some cleats in the ground is a good idea. Yeah, I agree. And so the intentionality about, about having the principles, know who you are, know what you stand for. Mm-hmm. And, at the and same know t- what you'll find intolerable. And know what you find intolerable. Like what is the what is the what is a bridge too far? I think those those are great uh, actionable steps that we can all do because and that we- tips the other way. By the way, so even if for some odd reason, if some left wing, you know, str- fairly strongly woke person is listening to this, I think that there there are valid concerns around the president, for example. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the man is necessarily a fascist. I have thoughts that are not particularly glorious about him, but um, I don't think that he's likely to be a fascist. Uh, It's possible. So what are your Trump breaking points? Right. Maybe those have already been passed and that's fine if that's the case, but it's something again, if they haven't, you know, what is the, what is the bridge too far where you're like, no, I actually am principled to the point where I, my support for this breaks here. Yeah. And it should be with with everything that looks like there's some serious threat of of uh, I mean, it should be other parts of your life, frankly. I mean, with my marriage, my wife and I did this years and years ago. Where are the slipping points where we know that, you know, this is intolerable. But um, what if we just grow apart? How do we stop that? What are the signs? Where do we say, whoa, we've tripped the wire and now we're going to go reconnect for a weekend or a week away or something? It's just an important part of life to be able to set that up and stick to it. Yeah. I, well, I talk about this on the show for, for eight years. I've talked about that, the intentionality behind it. And I, and I think sometimes we don't realize how m- much work that is. It is a lot of work. It's easy to understand. It's everything we're talking about is, as you said, from, um, understanding that, yeah, it makes sense. I need to have principles, isn't that? But doing the work, it takes a lot of work because this, uh, I guess the self-reflection piece, I know for me, um, sometimes I didn't like what I saw, you know, and I think that's, but but that's part of the process, right? Sometimes you don't like the person that you end up. That's true. And that's, but that's part of the growth. That's part of the growth process, right? I mean, that's part of the authenticity. And I say this, I think the currencies that are so missing in everything, in all of our institutions and our own personal lives is authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability. Those are the keys I think to leading a significant life and mm-hmm. having a significant culture into having, it's been proved. I mean, it's, it, this isn't, this, there's empirical evidence that that produces significant and positive outcomes for everyone. And, but we suck mm-hmm. at, for whatever reason, being authentic, being transparent and being vulnerable. Right. And I think we suck at it because it takes a tremendous amount of courage. And, and that's mm-hmm. what, what's, what's being called. And uh, that's how I see it. I don't know. Yeah. I know. I think that that's exactly right. It, 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 we're all very busy 
it's uncomfortable to be honest with oneself Mm -hmm. where you have to admit that you, you know, you, you lay out your principles. And the second you do this for anybody who's done it, you know, uh, you, you lay out your (laughs) principles and you're like, man, it introduces accountability into your life. That's why I don't quit hit those that often. (laughs) It's easy to beat yourself up because, you know, it's like, because it introduces accountability into the fold, which we haven't really talked. I mean, we, we've been, I mean, for like Christians not to step in anybody's toes, but I actually feel like that's a integral part of what the the story of Jesus, the, the gospel is about is that, you know, that God had his, his covenant and his view of the proper life. And he sent an example. Right. And so that gives people a worldly example, God and man at the same time, to be able to stare at and look at and say, you know, that's really the model I should try to be living up to, even though I can't get there, but I should try to do the best I can with it. And uh, I mean, since I'm an atheist, I can say things like this and not feel weird about them. And maybe Christians wouldn't be as comfortable. But my friends and I actually talk about, you know, you need to be able to figure out what your personal Jesus looks like. Mm hmm. Yeah. And maybe if you're a Christian, it is Jesus. And maybe if you're not a Christian, it doesn't matter because you can use that as a metaphor for something, you know, this this much more principled version of yourself that lives up to the right things by definition and to to set yourself to that standard. Well, I mean, I think all the great religions and all the great philosophers and it it all goes Mm -hmm. back to and even even in the case of like, well, I don't know what I believe or I don't believe in God at all. I mean, mm-hmm. you can still have, I think at the core of it, it's got to be about the individual, right? And it, mm-hmm. it, it's always about the individual. That's right. The individual has to be able to get right with themselves. Yeah. And then as far as their spiritual tradition goes, get right with whatever it is they see within that. Right. And, um, and the problem with where, it, where religion, everything gets, and it's kind of the same it's this, it's the same thing that we've been talking about here it's with the, the it, it because it's when religions get sideways and there's plenty of examples of that throughout history mm-hmm. um, it creates chaos it creates mass genocide and death and mm-hmm. um it's and that's what's happening with the kind of the woke culture it's turned into a bad religion right i feel that i feel that's right i feel like it's taken a a a generally good kind of spiritual, social, spiritual principle of social justice, yep. you know, a fairer and more equitable society and turn it into something evil, very narrow and evil. Yeah. Because it manipulates your best impulses, your best instincts mm-hmm. and turns them to its purposes without any real regard to what happens to the individual that it infects or the organization that it infects. In fact, it celebrates no matter what happens. If it infects an organization and the organization collapses as a result, well, that's one more racist organization down. And if it survives, it becomes a woke organ. So it's, (laughs) yeah, it's very gross. It does it to individuals too. What if it infects you and it makes you uh, get to the point where you, you hate yourself and you're miserable all the time. Well, that's because you were full of bigotry and that's what you deserved. And if, on the other hand, you become, you know, very pious in the faith, that's great because you become another woke organ. It doesn't care about people. It doesn't care about people Mm-mm. or in- institutions at all. It only cares about promoting itself. And that's a religion gone sideways. Yep. Amen. Well, gosh, James, you're doing great stuff. And I'm, I'm glad to have met you. And I've, I've really, yeah. we've been talking for almost two and a half hours. But, uh, man, what a, and I've never done that on Dose of Leadership. I've usually kept them to 30 to 45 in an hour. But I, I, I want it happens to me everywhere I go now. I know. But I, I wanted to do this because I, I, I think that, 
I, and that's what I've been struggling with. And, and I'll just say it right here on the show is that I, I'm pivoting the show to, cause I've been struggling and I don't know if that makes sense, but just to have the normal conversations of like, well, how'd you start your business and what were the challenges and what were the, what were the um, dark moments and when did it seem impossible and how did you pull yourself out of the bootstraps? And you know what I mean? I, I, yeah, I've had 430 conversations like that. And in the, in the, in the, in the wake of what's happening in the real world, it's, it just seems vanilla and empty to me now. And I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? No, it makes sense. I mean, what I keep telling people is that for dealing with this, one of the best forms, I don't, I don't want to create, activists i feel like an activist on the behalf of people's right to not but if you want to do something meaningful you don't have to speak i mean you can speak up to some degree but you don't have to speak up you don't have to get on a public pedestal and run your yeah. mouth or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. you can just do the thing right somebody who's taking on the concept of leadership and just doing it and you know touching these issues without like wallowing in them and getting dragged down into them. Who's doing the, who's, who's building the thing, what we need. Critical theory is a corrosive tearing down thing. I talked about that poem on, on Joe Rogan's show mm-hmm. where the, the, you know, uh, is I've, I've seen the poem again now. It's been since I was a kid, but it's not, I still can't recite it. But the idea is still that the idea that um, unskilled laborers can tear down in a day what it took master builders a year to build easy to tear things down it's hard to build things up it is and what the world right now the world is is at a pivoting point where what it needs are people who are building the next generation of things right so one of the most valuable forms of if you want to call it activism or whatever to conquer the woke problem is to just start being the builder. I love it. Start f- building the thing that that fits into this new world without without having to compromise who you are, what you believe in the process. All it knows how to do is tear down. So that's a thing you have to be aware of in this new world, at least for the moment, is that there will be attempts to tear you down. So leadership means how do you avoid being torn down? How do you be, mm-hmm. avoid being torn apart from the inside by people? Um, that are trying to, you know, hustle the system where they know that they can then create these double binds and so on. And being the thing that builds that, I don't know. I, I look at the example of the Quillette magazine where, where Claire Lehman, who's a friend of mine now, saw a place where both academic literature and journalism were failing. And she built the thing that filled the gap. Yeah. Yeah. Just build the thing that fills the gap. I love how you said that, and that actually that actually gave me a sense of. I probably didn't sound like it to you, but it does give me a sense of of clarity again and an optimism. Like, yeah, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And I and something that I've I've said time and time again, and what I believe in from a leadership perspective is that you just got to go in and do the work. Uh, you're right. You don't have to stand on a platform and, and a megaphone, or even have a hit podcast, or even anything. You just need to go do the work. And, and it's just, sometimes it's just, you know, you you go down and just, you just start doing and leadership is very thankless, grimy, gritty, dirty, lonely, (laughs) you know, it's not, but, 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 but when you do the work, the payoff can be, the payoff can be, it's kind of like the pyramids, like you said. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. it's someday, someday you, you may not see the end result. And a lot of people who laid the initial foundation of, 
of the Great Pyramids never saw it to come to fruition, right? Or even the right. the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, right? I mean, I mean, it took 300 right. years to get it to its presence. That's right. You know? And so the people that laid the foundation never even saw it, you know? And so that's that's how we got to view this. And so you just got to get do the work. And maybe I'm making it sound more noble and and um, I don't know what the right word is, more bigger than it is. But I think it, it, but it's scary. I, it's, I don't know. It's as a sign. I'm probably a silent majority type. I feel like I don't know what to do. And, it, and it's scary. And nobody does, man. Nobody. People ask me all day, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm like, <laughs> Okay. Good luck. I tell you, I don't watch. I don't watch. Yeah. I don't know. I don't either. Nobody knows. I don't watch the news like I used to. You know. And I, I don't either. I've turned the news off entirely. <laughs> I don't watch it at all. Um, I, I don't care what they're saying. I don't believe what they're saying, frankly, either. Mm-hmm. I would have to. It's a harder job to go suss out information and try to find out what's true. Yeah. But I don't want noise being blared into that already difficult process and, and um, i just want to add value i got to remind myself every day when i find myself getting sucked into the yeah I, I how do i how do i, I grow a relationship with somebody perfect right that's another one how do i be friends with my neighbors where before maybe i was like oh they're the wrong kind of people how do i how do i stop my stupid libertarian neighbors how do i be friends with them <laughs> now you know how do i do it you know how do i bridge those gaps how do i make friends with people who have different views than i do how do i meet somebody at their faith if i don't have it you know just do the thing how do you do it you know how do i be friends with with so now i have to be friends with with people across racial because i already am then it's awkward now. How do I fix that? How do I make yeah, that relationship? How do I get past the again? awkwardness of it? Yeah. Yeah. How do we get past this? That, that's a challenge to rise up to, and it requires these things. And uh, the, the, it's possible. Yeah, that's so funny that you brought that up. I know we're, we're going to end on this, but I just it, it is. I mean, I think about my African American friends, and it's like I've um, I've almost kind of avoided them more now than before this, right? Because I it's, don't know what to up. do. It's because it's not healthy and it's, you know, how do you center that relationship back in your friendship or if you're religious into your faith? I see, I say that specifically because I've been invited to so many faith-based things in the past year. I'm very popular. It turns out in the Southern Baptist convention really? and I just see people of all races of, of both sexes of, 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 you know, all types just coming together in their faith and putting that first. And I don't agree with their faith and that's fine, but seeing them come together it's like they're finding the thing that works mm-hmm. that community and you know i challenge them a little bit by my presence because they want to accept me but it's a little awkward and so we have to find ways to make it work and i felt i benefit from the relationship they benefit from the relationship and so you know find those things whether it's burgers or whether it's your well, church or whatever it is yeah. that bring you together you're human sounds cliche but we're human beings right and at the at the oh. core of it we all want to be respected we all you know it all comes down to love to me i talk about that on the show i hear time, it you know i hear you i mean it's that's just, right it's like i gotta love this person i mean that's that's the obligation i gotta make the place better than i found it and i gotta find ways to not be an, an asshole right because <laughs> I, mean, yep. I left to my own devices i can be an asshole if i'm not intentional about it right we all can we yeah. all can uh it's super easy all right, brother, man. Great conversation. How can people reach out and, and learn more about you and, and your website? And uh, great website, by the way. Got a great article, newdiscourses.com. I'll have links to it. But how else can people reach out to you? 
the easiest way, the only social media I'm genuinely active on. I mean, people will find me. I have a thing on Facebook. I have a thing on Instagram, but the one I pay attention to really closely is Twitter. I'm at conceptual James on Twitter. I apologize for, I mean, everybody seems to love my Twitter, but, um, I'm fairly active. I get a lot of messages is like, I followed you and you tweet a lot. So, so I'm going to unfollow you. I'm like, okay, that's great. That, don't subject yourself to something you don't want to deal with. Right. Uh, so I do tweet a lot. I'm a little bit irreverent. I'm, I'm more friendly in person than I am on uh, in the arena. As I refer to Twitter, it is the arena. Well, that um, is, that is the arena of irreverence. So, I mean, I think everybody kind of knows yeah. that. You know. So, you know, you can find me there uh, at conceptual James. Uh, I post pretty much everything I do, you know, that people might want to find out about on their book coming out, Cynical Theories. Oh yeah, Cynical uh, Theories coming out. We didn't talk about that, but we'll have, we'll have links to all that. Yeah. yeah, any moment now, who knows? The pandemic time doesn't make any sense. So yeah. it could come out soon. It might be all the way till the stated date of late August. We'll see. It traces the postmodern theory of this, if people want to understand where this came from and how it operates. And it's it's really clear. Everybody keeps telling me that's read it early. Well, I'm definitely going to get a copy of it because I think it's important, particularly from a leadership perspective. I think it's important that we understand this, become um, aware of this. Again, this isn't a left-right thing. I think this is just a, right. it's, it's a human thing. And, and the last chapter is all about about the liberal answer to this question. So if you need your primer back into liberalism and point it at some sources that will help you strengthen that, that's I, what the last chapter is about. I love it. And I, I was listening to your one of your lectures and you were talking about the definition of liberalism. And, and so I, when I last said, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm probably more liberal than I am conservative after hearing what you, what you said about it, you know, liberalism is a big tent. There are left, right and center mm -hmm. people within liberalism. There are progressives, there are, are staunch conservatives who still believe in the fundamental principles of uh, deferring to objective standards, conflict yeah. resolution that way, rule of law. Um, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, as you put it. Awesome. Great conversation, James. Hopefully we'll, we'll meet again and, and I'd love to meet you in person sometime. So hopefully this is the beginning of, of, of a great relationship and I'm so honored that you came on my show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Stay in touch for sure. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dosa Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.